Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in today. Today's episode is brought to you by Bluefish Design in Tempe, Arizona. Bluefish Design is a full-service marketing ad agency. They can work with you on branding, logos, interactive and digital media. They're modern, they're fun, they're hip. Check them out online, www.bluefish.com. That's B-L-U-F-I-S-H.com. Tell them we sent you. And then now for today's episode. Today's episode is all about Santa Rita Hills Pinot Noir. Uh, we kind of break down the region. We talk about where the name came from. We talk about if we're going to have sulfites, they better be free range and organic. This episode was a lot of fun. We really hope you enjoy. Thanks for tuning in. Dude, how good is this beer? Is so good. It's crazy. It's so good. I, I feel that... I really I, like it now. I, just like a good wine, you want to warm it up a little bit. If you have a really, really cheap, shitty beer, you need to put little mountains on it that turn cold, turn blue, and it's 32 degrees. And if it turns 33, then your mountains are no longer blue. Like, <laughs> I just realized what beer you're talking about. Right. What a, but just like shitty wine, you want to serve ice cold. There's a reason why grandma throws an ice cube in her $3 Pinot Grigio <laughs> to keep it cold. And you don't want to serve that wine warm. There's a reason why a good stout, you serve at room temperature, but you know, natty ice above 33 degrees, er, not yeah. so much. Well, it's like, uh, but even like Pilsners, you keep colder. So you treat like a Pilsner, like a white wine. I like Pilsners cold. I like Peroni cold. I like, you know, even this one was good cold, but now that's unique. It's better warm. But like I do kind of like pouring wine a little cold so that I can just see where I like. Because I can't make the wine colder once it's in the glass. Ice cubes. <laughs> You're just the worst. Come on. <laughs> Are you an Italian grandma? <laughs> Actually, I had an idea, and somebody's definitely probably going to end up taking this or using it. So uh, here's my invention for the episode, was I'm going to freeze wine into ice cubes and then drop that ice cube of wine into the same glass that I was using. So like, for instance, let's say your mother loves white Zinfandel. Take a bottle of white Zin, pour it into the little ice tray, let it freeze. And then when you pour the white Zin, take the ice cube of that white Zin wine and put it in there. So when it melts, all it's doing is just melting into its own form. It's not diluting the wine. All right. So a couple quick things about that. One, I know Spectator has done multiple tests on freezing wine, letting it thaw out and if it's good and they've had no problems with the quality of the wine once it's thawed I've done out. it once or twice accidentally with a white bottle I've, we're frozen then I left it on the counter of course yeah. I have as well cork I've, was pretty far out of the bottle but you know I've blown up a couple bottles of champagne <laughs> in the freezer before oh. like see I haven't done that one yet I've, I've definitely put up a beer bottle but never a, uh, a, a champagne bottle so I I know that I think it was like Dr. Vinny or one of those, you know, articles that the people that write for Spectator has tested that whole thing about freezing wine. Um, I would not freeze wine myself, but here's a good life hack is that a lot of people cook with wine. Often you don't want to open a new bottle to cook with, or if you open a bottle, you don't necessarily like, oh man, this is a really good bottle. I don't know if I want to even throw a splash in my pan. What you could do is if you have those, a little bit of wine that's left over, kind of getting old, you know, you want to cook with it, but you don't want to cook today. Put that wine in ice cube trays. And this way, when you go to cook, you're like, okay, I'm braising some ribs. I need a little bit of you know, white wine or red wine to throw in the bottom of the pan. You could pop out a couple frozen ice cubes of that old wine. It's already been kept in there. Throw them in the bottom of your pan. 
Now you have wine to braise with, cook with, and it's you're not taking out of what you just opened in your bottle. But wouldn't you just leave the bottle on your counter and then when you're done with it, pour it in the wine like a couple of days later? Like I have a bottle of wine that I just have sitting out. It's a bottle of Malbec. It's probably two months old and just sitting out in the open, and that's my cooking wine. Ooh, see, I don't go that far. You I don't. don't I don't. I don't let it go. You don't to, like to, go to, vinegar. To, yeah, I, I keep a bottle of white wine in the fridge that maybe up to a three, four, five weeks, no problem, okay. like that I'll cook with. Um, but the red wines, I don't like to cook with vinegar. Like I do like yeah. to cook with vinegar, but not like. But like a, not like that. Okay, I see what you're going. Would you think wine oxidizes if you were to freeze it and put it in a tray? That's the whole thing. Is no, it won't. It won't oxidize. Uh-uh. That's crazy. I feel like we need to actually do that sometime. Get a bottle, freeze a bunch. And then for like a week, and then throw them into throw all the ice cubes into a decanter, and have a second bottle, and then open the second bottle of the same vintage and taste it side by I'm side. Ri- I'm writing this down. I think that's a good idea. I mean, it'd be kind of a fun little test to do a white wine and a red wine that way. And s- I've heard the rumor, I've but I've never actually tested it myself. So we can go full MythBusters on this. I like it. <laughs> we could be the MythBusters of drinks. We could start that having sounds like a fun. We job. Start having MythBuster episodes. Yeah, I'm I'm all about that. You know, we had the, the we should we should drink sulfite. You know air quotes, sulfite-free wine, and then drink another wine with all the sulfites and see who gets a worse headache. And when we find out that neither one of us do, let's see how many people get pissed off at that one. I love the fact that uh, there's actually a big notation in the Wine Folly book. It was one of the first things I saw in there that uh, it says, headaches are not caused by sulfites. It should be the first page. <laughs> God, put it on every page. I had a girl, she came in, we did an event about, I think it was like two weeks ago, it was about two weeks ago, And she sat there and she came in and she was just, you know, I can't like, is your wine sulfite free? Because I can't have sulfites in anything. And she's saying this like as she's eating the cheese off of the cheese plate. So I'm just like, all right. I was like, uh, no, we try to keep our sulfites to a minimum level, but we still use it. And she's like, I just, I just can't do it. I'm just allergic to sulfites. They just are the worst for me. I can only drink white wine, so I can't drink red. And I wanted just to be like, you know what? No, like I, I wanted to break her entire bubble of no, there's more sulfites in white wine than red wine. So you're clearly a liar or, I, you know, you're just making everything up. <laughs> I have fought that that fight for so many years, um, especially doing tastings at Whole Foods, doing tastings in I see Whole Foods being that way. Certain establishments tend to have more people that will that are anti-vaxxers. I feel like anti-vaxxers are the people that also want sulfite-free wine. I, I was going to relate the sulfite-free people are like anti-vaxxers. They think they heard something, they then researched it, and all the research was wrong, and, well, they're still sticking to their guns. Or they didn't actually research it. They ended up hungover, and they saw three clickbaity titles, and they read the title, and they came up like, well, I saw it on the internet. Well, you never even read the article. You never read the... Yeah, they, they read the, the headline. Do yeah. sulfites cause, you know, yeah. headaches? And then they were like... In their mind, like, yes, they do. And that's all they read. And they go, there was an article about it. Meanwhile, they didn't read the article. And they have one friend that sat there at the coffee shop and told them that that's the reason for it. And, and their one friend was like, I was in France and Italy, and I didn't have any headaches while I was over there. I get that a lot, too. Well, it's because you don't drink as much. They don't use the oak that they do, or we do in America. Yeah, a lot of people are under the, the notion that wines in Europe have less sulfites I mean, they're just naturally occurring in wine regardless, and if, yeah. they're, if they're adding them, which they are adding them, it's the same amount in both countries. It's not like they're like adding less over there, adding a different type, or GM, GMO sulfites, like yeah. GMO-free sulfites. By the way, uh, sulfur uh, is a naturally or occurring uh, chemical in the uh, world, so 
you know, technically it's organic. So for now on, that's what I'm going to tell people. Is it's like, organic sulfites. Yes. If they're like, are there sulfites in there? Yeah, but they're, they're, they're organic. They're, they're organic. They're, they're non-GMO, they're, gluten-free. They're or- free-range organic sulfites. <laughs> 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 that's, that's my new term. <laughs> I'm going to piss off some you people. Can, you can say it all. I love it. It's perfect. Let's do it. <laughs> yes. We're going to start the whole free... Ha- hashtag, yeah. Hashtag ha- sulfites are... Free-range sulfites. Are vegan-friendly. Free-range sulfites. Free-range <laughs> you know, I had read a thing a long time ago, and I don't know how true it was. <laughs> I can't wait for that to keep going. The same thing as pizza is toast. You hear it, and you're like, what? And then all of a sudden, you're like, oh, I guess it makes sense. I had read a thing where, uh, or like, I, I saw it either on the History Channel, when it was the History Channel, not, you know, aliens and off-road truckers and gold diggers on uh, literal gold diggers, not like women gold diggers. But um, they were talking about how old Roman people used to go into actual like sulfur mines or sulfur pits around the volcanoes and scrape the stuff out to use, whether it was in foods or wines and stuff. And these people would die horribly like years later, but that's how they, they've been using sulfites in the Roman times. Not that we should be setting standards as the Romans did, but that's how long they've been using it. And it's only been the last 30 years when people went, Oh, sulfites are the problem. Like, no, it's not. (laughs) Yeah. I think it has a lot to do with the fact that it's listed on the label. It's the fact that if it if it said this wine contains tannin powder, contains acidification powder, contains this, this, and this or icing glass, all the other stuff that's added in, people are gonna be like, "Oh, I'm allergic to that. I can't have that. I can't I, have that." I guarantee you, you would see that. I guarantee if you had to put all the ingredients on a label of wine and somebody went, "What's icing glass?" Oh, I can't have that. I'm 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 allergic to icing glass. But then they'll go eat like a halibut or a cod, and you're like, "That's still whitefish." Like it's. And for people who don't know, icing glass is a fining agent made out of whitefish that's used to clean wine. Or egg yolk. People, that, not egg yolk, egg white, excuse me. Is icing glass considered also like the diatomaceous earth family? Like DE? Well, it's actually a fish bladder. Okay. Yeah, it's an internal organ part that when you basically break it down, it's a... Uh, I believe it's one of those things where it's like, you know, it's negative and then it grabs all the positive stuff, drops to the bottom. It doesn't end up in your wine. It gets filtered out. You know, there's no rhyme or reason for it. Yeah, but, just um, like people that use egg whites. Exactly. It's not going to end up in your wine in any way. It's used to clear it all. But you, like I said, you'd have people. That's why when people ask me if my wine is vegan, it's not like. I use I use icing glass in some of my wine. I've used egg whites once just to because I wanted to see it. I don't think I used it well. It didn't really clear the way I thought it was. I don't know if I used too little. I'm guessing, but um, yeah. I mean, all the ingredients that you use for fining are mostly made from some form of either a living animal or a multi-million year dead animal. <laughs> but is the icing glass going to be free range and organic? <laughs> Uh, it's well, it's, do we consider the ocean a free range? So there we go. We're good. <laughs> it's, co- it's, it's non GMO animals. So God, it's just one of those battles that I'm, I'm part of me is kind of over fighting, but I know I have to keep constantly fighting it. And I'm glad that people that are wine writers are putting it in their books and trying to say, I can't believe we actually have to say this to people, but no, it's, you, you have a headache because you drank three bottles of wine and took a Xanax. <laughs> <laughs> like it's. It's yeah. n- it's not because you it's not because someone put yeah. sulfites in your eighteen percent Zivendel. Yeah, and eating McDonald's and shitty food along with that too. I do I, the GMO thing. I wonder though because technically GMO is genetically modified, but aren't all grapes genetically modified? Whether it's by nature or by man, they're all mutations of something brought together. That like like we were talking about Cab Sauvignon being the 
the child of Cab Franc and Sauvignon Blanc. That's a genetic mutation. It was natural, but it happened. So wouldn't that make all drinking wine genetically modified? And oh, by the way, forget the genetically modified part. How about naturally just modified by turning it into wine? That's not what a grape was. It's what we made it was wine. Yeah, I think that as far as like nature modifying something over a period of, you know, decades, centuries, millennia, it, it's it's different than some dude that went to a, a lab and genetically modified something and just tried to give it to us. I mean, I could I could see that argument. Yeah. And again, so much of the stuff we consume is genetically modified right now. We don't even realize. Well, like what's uh, what is it? Brazilian nuts? I think it's Brazil nuts or almond. I think it's almonds or cashews. One of them has cyanide in it. So you got to cook it out. And that's a naturally modified food. What are the big nuts that are in the mixed nuts that nobody likes to eat? Are those Brazil nuts? I think those are Brazil nuts. They're yeah. like the, the fat giant ones or yes. cashews maybe? No, cashews are delicious. It's, cashews. it's those, yeah, they're the big ones. They Have you ever like, seen what a cashew comes off of? It looks oh, like an apple. It's, it's like the bottom of a... It's weird looking. Yeah, it's so weird that to look at it, you're like that little nub off the bottom of this apple pear looking thing is the nut that everybody eats. Yeah, we Googled that one night because I was like, I've never seen a cashew in a shell because we're like, you know, peanuts in a shell, almonds in a shell, walnuts in a shell. Yeah. never seen, I was like... I was Pecan, like, what was the tree we had in our yard? Was it hazel? Or pecans. I think it was pecans. Pecans? Pecans? <laughs> I think we've had this argument before. <laughs> well, for, for, for me, it's it's pecans, unless it's in a pie, and then it's pecan. Pe- but then it's pecan it's pie. It's pecan pie. Yeah. But it's pecans if you eat it. Yep. Nuances of words. It's so weird. But yeah. Another reason why Europeans probably have so much difficulty coming over here trying to like adapt to our language. I still have to do the... Uh, Truman, or no, the Truman, the Bruce Almighty thing, where to spell beautiful, I say B-E-A, B-E-A, beautiful, so I can remember how to spell it properly, because it's weird having an E, an A, and a U to start a word, basically, or a were and where always messes with me. I'm still, I don't know if I ever say that right. Yeah, for me, when I spell, spell it right, when I spell minute, I spell minute, minute, (laughs) that's yeah, those little life hacks, little things that mentally you put in your head, like I was talking earlier about. Yeah, there's some words you could just say, and no matter how many times you say it or spell it, you're like, that just doesn't seem right. But Mississippi. Or how about, how come you say Arkansas and our Arkansas? Because Kansas and Arkansas are spelled the same way, minus the A-R, but you say Arkansas, and then you say Kansas. You don't say Kansas. How come Sean doesn't rhyme with bean? <laughs> Sean Bean is spelled the exact same, minus an S and a B. Yeah. Or my favorite is uh, Julio Jones on Atlanta. It's two J's. So do you actually call his initials HJ? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Good point. Instead of JJ? <laughs> Never really thought of that. <laughs> Everybody's minds are being blown. Yeah, people are still trying to... Guys, like, we're not even high. <laughs> they're still going down the rabbit hole of the uh, the uh, cashew over here. The cashew, yeah. They're all thinking about the different nuts everything eats, everybody eats. It's It's creepy looking and to be honest the fact you've never seen the fruit like i've never seen like cashew fruit like i don't know if it's bitter or nasty like yeah do you eat it i'm sure somebody distills it makes a drink out of it somewhere oh my god people distill will still distill anything anything i mean if you can make alcohol out of it people will it's been done yeah (laughs) i told you about my buddy that has the degree in fermentation sciences that's so cool yeah i mean his greatest line was, if I'm ever on Survivor, I will never get thrown off. I've said, okay, that's great, because that's so true, because I've said the same thing. Is I don't bring anything to the table if the apocalypse happened. Like, I can't hunt. Yeah, I'm going to learn this year. Like, I don't know how to clean water that well, other than I assume you boil it. But I know how to make a drink, and I think everybody wants that. So I could ferment anything and make it work. 
I mean, that's basically what he said. He's like, I can literally ferment anything on the island. Like, you want alcohol? I if can. there's sugar in it, we can ferment it. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. It's, I think it's a good thing. It's a good thing to have. You don't want to get rid of that guy. No, nobody wants to get rid of that guy. Get rid of the uh, the meathead dude or the person with drama issues. And you don't need the Instagram people. Nope. Or the Facebook people. You need the uh, the me, people who bring one thing to a table. Me and the brewer taking it to the end. Yep. Yeah. That guy's going to get protected, too. Because if he's the only one that can create alcohol, the whole tribe's going to make sure he stays alive. <laughs> Thus, probably where the medicine man came from. Oh, uh, yeah. Good point. Maybe going back voodoo, to voodoo people. Tribes and shit like that. Like the guy who could get... The shaman... The guy who knew what mushrooms to mix to get people all messed up, or uh, who, yeah. who to spit in this jug to make a magical concoction, but instead it fermented it. You're right. You've always heard over all history of time of any tribe, of any religion, of any civilization of people, they all had some type of, you know, again, air quotes, medicine man, or like somebody who got people fucked up. Yeah. And they always had them. They weren't religious people, but they were super important in society. You never got rid of them, and their magical talents were always something they passed down to somebody that took over that role. Yep. And they were never the chief, but you know what? They ruled the village. <laughs> like, they made everybody happy. You don't mess with the medicine man. Yeah. And the best thing is, is if something goes horribly wrong, you could just say, oh, uh, the devil did it, not me. <laughs> True. You could say something else did it. Oh, he didn't take the right dose. He didn't do the right thing. Not. It's not your fault. It's the medicine's fault. There's another demon in there that I didn't realize. Yep. Yeah, exactly. It's like medicine today. You know, you could take all the medicine. You blame the pharmacy, but you won't blame the doctor for prescribing it to you. I thought this weird kind of thought as I was driving up the neighborhood the other day there was a psychic and the windows of the psychic place had bars on the windows that's weird and I was thinking they must not be a very good psychic <laughs> <laughs> because if they were good you'd probably know that you don't you know someone's that's gonna break point. in I always yeah now I'm gonna start looking at camera like if there's a camera on a psychic door or something I want the psychic whose door is wide open who doesn't even have a door why have hours then you know when people are gonna show totally. up totally yeah. yes uh-huh. You don't need them. Though that's got to be the busiest psychic in town. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> the dude with bars on his windows and a security camera out front. That's how much? much? Yeah, that's not a psychic. That's a front, but still, <laughs> like, how much stuff are you moving through your place if you got to have bars on there? It always yeah. amazes me that some of these psychic buildings around town have been there for years. Dude, year, there's that one in Old Town, right yes. by the chop shop. It's been there for, like, 10 Ever. years now, at minimum. I've never seen it open. I've never seen it. <laughs> Maybe they don't need to be. Maybe they know. Maybe they won the lottery and they just were like, well, we know. And down in Tempe, there was the palm reader that was there forever. There's that. So the one, the psychic people by my house, they bought the house and they turned it into, all it says is psychic on like a little, what looks like a for sale sign, like you nail into your grass basically. And they have all these old cars. They built a parking lot. They've got RVs and they're like, what? This, they look like hoarders, but it says psychic right there. I'm like, this is a front for something. <laughs> When I was growing up, I didn't realize that was an option to make money. Otherwise, maybe I would have became a psychic. I bet that lady who did the psychic network walked away with millions of dollars. Yeah, there was a lot of drama associated with that. Uh, Madam Cleo. Madam Cleo. Yeah. Yeah, the Jamaican who wasn't Jamaican. Yes. There was a lot of... There was some like... I, I remember like, her info commercials. Do you remember them late at night? She'd be like, now, nah, dear, tell me what's going on with your life. And you'd be like, you, you're not Jamaican. <laughs> I think there was a episode of American Greed on her. Really? Yeah. There was there was a lot of shady stuff that went down with that whole transaction, like what they what they were doing. I don't imagine there's a lot of psychic people out there who are not in some way or form a little bit shady. Like, I, there might be out of what let's pretend there's a million psychics in the world, maybe ten thousand of them actually one hundred percent believe they have psychic abilities. 
The rest of them are like, eh, whatever. People believe anything. I make money. And the one guy who actually is psychic is living on a yacht, like hitting a lot all the time. He, sure he hasn't is, said a thing. He sure as hell ain't living on Taco Row with like bar or bars on his windows. Nope. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> right? Ugh. All right, so let's talk about some wine. Let's do it. I mean, have you even tried these? Have you no, I've just been smelling them, man. I, I had the beer, and then we've uh, I've just been kind of sniffing these. There's something really unique about Santa Rita Hills and Santa Barbara Pinot. Like, it's, there's a flavor profile that, I, it's just, for me, it's very unmistakable. Like, when someone says, here, smell this, and I smell it, and it's Santa Rita Hills, I'm like, that's Santa Rita Hills. Yeah, Santa Rita Hills has a very distinct nose and flavor to it. And I remember, I think it was either you or Dustin were the first one to introduce me to it. And it was... Um, it was Sans Liege's uh, groundwork, I believe it was. And I remember thinking to myself, it smelled like flint, like a, like a gun had gone off kind of like close to my face, like this gunpowdery kind of nose. And I thought it was just the barrel. And then after we had a few more, I started noticing it was kind of the same in all the wines. Well, some was toned down, some was a little more prevalent. But it's such a, it's a very distinct, like I can go to the Russian River and have, you know, from top to bottom, things will relatively smell the same. Maybe one vineyard site's a little bit different. The winemaker might manipulate it, but there's nothing really like Santa Rita Hills Pinot. I was lucky to take my first trip down to the Lompoc Wine Ghetto with three or four friends many years ago. I love that. It's called the Wine, wine Ghetto. Yeah. And Did you say Lompoc? Yeah. It's not Lompoc? Lompoc. It's Lompoc? Yeah. Oh, all right. I think so. I don't know. I've always said Lompoc. Yeah, I said Lompoc. Whatever, we're not from there. Totally. Somebody's listening and they're like, what the fuck? Yeah, it's, I'm pretty sure it's Lompoc, but I mean, whatever. Yeah, um, sure. So, but I went down there with a bunch of friends and I didn't even know where I was going. They're like, oh, we're going to the wine ghetto. I'm like, oh, what is this place? And it blew me away and I had a chance to try such amazing Pinots. It kind of built my love. And I think at that point, after spending two or three days of just drinking Santa Rita Hills Pinot, that flavor profile is now drilled into my head. Yeah. Because it, doesn't taste like Carneros. It doesn't taste like, you know, Sonoma Valley. It doesn't taste like anything from the Sonoma Coast. It definitely doesn't taste like Oregon. I no, mean, yeah. It, it's it's more bold on the nose. It's definitely... It, to me, comes off very aromatic, very bold on the nose with, like, the light characteristics of a burgundy without the over-jamminess of what Russian River can be. And so I'll say, uh, just because we're talking about this, so what we decided to do was... um. We wanted to do a Pinot Noir region, and we decided on Santa Barbara. So I brought in a Santa Maria Valley, which is just north of Santa Rita Hills, and then uh, we brought in a Santa Rita Hills Pinot. Um, so two Pinots from Santa Barbara from two different areas to try them out. So we're drinking the Santa Maria is uh, Julia's Vineyard from Cambria, and the Santa, Rita's, uh, Santa Rita Hills is from Foley. Uh, both same year, both 2015. Both bigger producers, you know, this area has gone through such an explosion of popularity that you've gotten a lot of people that have set up shop down there. Um, you know, people like Sea Smoke have carved out a niche that they were selling some really expensive Pinot Noir and they're selling it all out every single year. And then as soon as somebody sees that, they say, Ooh, I want to go down there. I want to go down there. So, I mean, these are, I'd say a couple bigger names, but they're still produced. They're not, they're not bulk wines by any means. Yeah. Well, there's so many. There's only so much land down there. Santa Rita Hills is a very small AVA compared to, you know, like a Sonoma. So, you know, Russian River Valley is relatively huge. And then, obviously, because uh, Santa Rita Hills is in Santa Ynez AVA, and Santa Ynez is a very unique structure to it. But yeah, Santa Rita Hills isn't too big. I'm not sure about Santa Maria Valley. I know it's big-ish. 
I made a Pinot there one year. I think it was actually the second Pinot I ever made. And um, I like it. I, I enjoy these wines or that area in general. Well, it was the first sub-AVA, Santa Maria, of the Central Coast uh, or of the Santa Barbara County. Yeah. So, I mean, they've added, I think, five of them now. There's uh, there's six as of 2016 or 2016. So the newest one is Los Olivos. So you have, obviously, Santa Maria, uh, that little bench area just north of Santa Ynez. And then the, in, the Santa, or, yeah, in the Santa Ynez area, you have Santa Rita Hills, um, Ballard Canyon, and Happy Canyon. And then now there's Los Olivos. And then eventually I saw some they're trying to get Los Alamos in that Santa Ynez as well. And it's, again, it's a, not a very big area. Pretty interesting that they're doing Pinot Noir so successfully down in that area. Well, climactically, it's an amazingly unique structure. I think I said that word right. Can climactically. You, can, can you say that again? Climactically. <laughs> See, that's another word. I don't know if I'm right. I don't know if I'm wrong, but I think I am. <laughs> so yeah, the uniqueness of Santa Barbara is it's kind of like if you held your arm out and moved your hand up to a 90 degree angle and your elbow was sticking out, that's what this area looks like. It's the only place in California where you come down and it takes a 90 degree turn from west to east. So with those mountains that run along the side, it basically creates this massive wind tunnel, keeping it so cold in that area. I mean, I don't think they break 90s in Santa Rita Hills ever, which is perfect for Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. And they are closer to the equator than any vineyard in Europe, surprisingly enough. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. Considering Burgundy's right along Oregon, basically on the same parallel. I mean, the fact that they can do a cool climate grape being that close to the equator is pretty amazing, but it's also because of the subclimate, like you were just explaining, being you know close to the ocean, you got the mountains and the hills right next to you, the Parisma Mountains to the north. I mean, it kind of traps them into this little wind tunnel. Yeah. And then you get a lot of fog, too, because of the ocean. Tons of fog. Yeah, absolutely. And it kind of keeps the, the temperatures down. I know that they're... Uh, their harvest is really, really late. They actually can hang their berries down there a lot later than other people. Yeah, that's one of the few places that they can let their berries hang like a month longer than most people would when they were picking their cab. Uh, if you were in like a Napa or even Paso, because Paso is, you know, what, an hour north of the Santa Barbara area, and it's so much warmer. You know, you make all your Rhone-style reds and all your cabs up there, but there's Santa Barbara an hour plus south making cool climate grapes. So I don't know if you ever noticed this, but the AVA on Santa Rita Hills is not Santa. It's not which is pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things that every time I've seen it, my mind always just says Santa, and I don't realize there's actually a story behind it. Yeah, Star Rita. Yeah. yeah. Do, S- you, do you know the story? It's, it's yeah. S-T-A period. Just mentally, everybody just says Santa Rita Hills. Yeah, because it was Santa Rita for up till like, I think it was 2006, 2007 area, and then they had to change it. Nah. You want to tell them why? <laughs> no. All right, I'll tell them why. Sounds like you know the story. I do. So there's a winery in Chile called Santa Rita, and they were so worried about having to compete with, you know, basically an AVA in America being a mass-marketed production facility from Chile, that they worked on an agreement and said, you can't call your AVA Santa Rita Hills, and you got to change it. So instead, they just named it STA Rita Hills. Like, they basically just dumbed it down. I actually kind of like Star Rita Hills. It's kind of fun to say. You know, plus it kind of throws people off. But that's like that's it. That's all it was, was just a small battle between a winery and an AVA, which makes me wonder who had more power, because this is a winery in Chile. Like, did they have so much money that they were able to either pay the AVA group off? 
Like, how did they do that? They gave somebody on the AVA board a villa in Chile. A, a valley, probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the and Machuga Valley is from the Machuga family from Santa Rita. <laughs> seriously, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, on sometimes you just got to play nice in the sandbox, too. Yeah, and, and the which wine, I agree. And the wine business is a global business. And since 1996, the U.S. has played nice in the sandbox with the global wine market. Um, you know, we kind of messed around in the global wine market making you know shitty burgundy or shitty chablis or american port or american champagne or whereas you know they put the laws in place to so you can't do that anymore and i think just moving forward the united states says okay we can't do that we shouldn't do that you can't do that but it's kind of randomly you just took a whole entire region and said we're no longer going to be called santa it's now starita yeah and what a weird thing like who cares that it's called i i get it if it was a somebody's name that would make sense, um, but it's an AVA, like in Santa Rita Hill. It's just Saint, like that's it. Like, and it was a Chilean winery too. Yeah, it was Chilean, and it's weird. Like, okay, it's just Saint. Like, it's not like again, like somebody's specific name in general. And now to this day, I mean, globally, people know Santa Rita Hills Pinot more than they know Santa Rita Winery. I would imagine, yeah. At least, definitely at home, maybe not globally. Yeah, I mean, I know Chile exports a lot to a lot of other countries, too. Yeah. But even though probably most of it comes here. That would be ironic if over time... Sorry, I just got distracted. The ice cream truck went by. (laughs) I saw it go by, and I was like, oh, there it is. (laughs) So, yeah, so I'd be intrigued to see over a long period of time how this affects Santa Rita Hills by having STA period hills. Because if you're... And I don't imagine they're going to make it too far outside of America because of how small it is. But let's say you're selling in Europe. You think people are going to say Star Rita Hills or because they're not going to know that it used to be Santa Rita. I don't know if these wines are really heavily exported. If you're ever even going to be able can't to imagine f- they would be. find a Santa Rita Hills Pinot in a shelf in anywhere in Europe. I mean, we're maybe Sea Smoke, maybe. I think you'll find them, if anywhere, on cruise ships, maybe some high level hotels. Oh, I see that. Um, Maybe it's some places along like coastal areas in Canada or maybe some resorts in Mexico, but I can't see these making it that far away. The region is so small. Pinot Noir, I mean, we're, what, the second largest producer of Pinot Noir on the planet, but we drink most of our, ourselves, what we produce. Yeah. And think about them being like a region in like outside of Burgundy, like Jura. So they obviously make a lot of Pinot Noir there, but when was the last time you ever had a Jura wine? Once? I've had a few. Yeah. But being the wine business, they they show up. Yeah. You know, have I ever bought one? I'm not, not once. Yeah, same thing. Like, they'll be there, or somebody will randomly... Somebody from France might drive down into Santa Barbara and stay for a weekend and be like, wow, I had this one great wine, and kept it and brought it back with them or something. Our 21 and over party, someone had brought a white Jura to the party that was over 20 years old. Really? Or I think it was just shy of, and they're like, does this still work? I'm like, yeah, it works. Oh, that's crazy. I wonder what it was. Because I remember the Spanish one somebody brought... With the gold thing on the outside and around. That wasn't that good. That one fell apart terribly. Yeah, I think that was a rosé. Was it the rosé? It wasn't a rosé. It was a white wine. Somebody had a 21-year-old rosé? Well, that same producer releases the rosé after like 15 years. Ooh. That's just when, when they release it. Yeah. Heidi Barrett had one up at uh, a Moose Bouche that does that. They release it like eight years later or something. I thought it was really weird for a rosé. But, I mean, I guess it can make it. If a white wine can do it, a rosé should be able to do it if it's built well. So... Santa Rita Hills, when I discovered this region, I discovered them mostly for Rhone-style wines. And I was drinking, like, 
Charisma Mountain Syrah from Beckman and some of the Roan Rangers wines. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of Grenache, Syrah, Mavedra, GSM blends. Some of the whites even doing like Rhone style whites I was having. And then just one day, that day in the Lompoc Wine Ghetto, I'd heard about Sea Smoke before, but I just ended up there with some friends and was like, holy shit, they got good Pinot. I think drinking these, the reason why they're so approachable to Americans is because they are juicy. There's a, yeah. there, there's a, there's a weight to these. They're not flimsy little burgundies. And trust me, there's powerful burgundies out there that it looks flimsy in a glass. Like, you look at the most powerful burgundies in the world, you can read a magazine through them. Yeah. Whereas the ones from Santa Rita Hills tend to be a little darker in color. They're still... in The, the weight in the palate tends to be a little more weighted, a little heavier. Yeah, I, I agree with you. The Santa Maria one, for sure. Um, Santa Maria is a bit warmer. Uh, I know the most famous vineyard down there is that Bien Nacindo vin- uh, vineyard that everybody loves to buy from. And uh, I've had a lot of great examples, but... I think you're you're kind of nailing it. There is a there is that juiciness factor in these wines where they're a bit bigger. They're definitely not as big as some of the ones you get from the Russian River Valley. They're still light in flavor, but the flimsiness is a good way of saying that because you definitely can look at a couple Burgundies and kind of be put off. You're like, wow, that it's not quite rosé. It's like too dark for rosé, but it's not dark enough to be what looks like a red wine should be. I, like- Oregon kind of has that a little bit, but this is uh, this doesn't. This looks like big kind of boldish wine i mean you could still see through it nicely but there's still a lot of color to it and americans like big things like we like big hair big sunglasses big cars big wines you know our liquors we drink big liquors we like people love ipas and whiskey and yeah all the oak in the world (laughs) let's let's triple oak you know for like 10 years my whiskeys and serve i mean that's it's just the american way our Red wines tend to be really heavily oak. Our our white wines, our Chardonnay is a mouthful here. Yeah. So it's only fitting that our Pinot Noirs typically are going to be a little bit bigger. And that's going to be the style that Americans are going to gravitate to. It is truly funny. Like, it's funny. We were talking about this in one of the last episodes where rosés, I've started noticing, are being made from Cabernet or Molbecs or uh, Syrahs because they're a bigger rosé. They're not the, you know, Provence style where it's real light and real elegant. It's big, giant rosés for what a rosé is. So it is fitting that when we would consider our Pinot Noirs to be light, to other people in other countries are like, wow, that is huge. We wouldn't drink that Pinot Noir because it's so big. Like, I imagine if you put this next to a Burgundy, they would assume it was some different type of grape. <laughs> so have you ever been to this region? I have. Have you been to the Hitching Post? I have not. Are you familiar with the Hitching Post? I'm not familiar with the Hitching Post. It is the... Uh, is there a song named after this? It's the restaurant slash winery that uh, they visited in the movie Sideways. Oh, that's right. Sideways was all about the Santa Barbara area. It was, and the the wines they were drinking. The it was the that movie was about the Pinot Noir from Santa Rita Hills or from this this Santa Barbara area, and it yeah. was focused around and it was filmed at the Hitching Post restaurant slash winery. Okay, you could buy those in town. Really, um, I think they go direct to a couple chain people. Um, the label looks like a horse brand. I mean, that's. This is horse country, too. So, I mean, you got a lot of horse farmers still out there, a lot of ranchers. A lot. Oh, yeah, that area? There's only so much room to build a city, so all you get is ranches. I've driven down through there twice now, and it is farmland USA. It just happens to have a lot of grapes in it, and Santa Barbara being what it is, you know. It's not like you can build anywhere down there. It's that pocket, that long, uh, 
Lompoc. <laughs> That's going to mess with me. Lompoc. Lompoc. Santa Maria. And then the little tiny town of Pismo. And then Santa Barbara at the end. And that's it. And then you got the mountains and then all that valley in between of, you know, grapes and vegetables and fruits and ranch. It's 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 actually a beautiful area until, you know, you get all the mudslides and stuff going on. And I haven't been there in a few years, but one of my favorite places to visit in Los Olivos was a place called the Los Olivos Wine Merchants. They have a little restaurant attached to it. I mean, the food was unbelievable. I mean, real like farmhouse, farm to table kind of style dishes fresh of course so much stuff in california wine country is that way yeah it's hard to find stuff that's not fresh <laughs> <laughs> no there's, joke. There, there's not too many chipotles in wine country and ironically the chipotle that is there is all made from the ingredients within two blocks of I'm the sure. chipotle <laughs> yeah so uh, los olivos wine merchant is they do some of their own wines they actually have like a beautiful selection of local wines there and there's a little restaurant attached to it that's just amazing. It's a little farmhouse. I believe it's like a little white or yellow farmhouse when I remember what it looks like. That's really cool. I like little towns like that that do that. Uh, so one of my best friends, my old roommate, Soup, um, he was working in uh, Santa Barbara. Uh, he managed or I can't remember what it was, director of rooms, whatever it was, at the Ojai. And the Ojai is up, you know, up in those mountains. They have the Ojai vineyards are out there. So it's just technically on that Santa Barbara AVA area. So they've got a lot of stuff around. But he lived down in Santa Barbara City. So I went and visited him. And there's this really awesome area in Santa Barbara within, you know, about a block of each other because the city's only so big. And there's like 20, 30 tasting rooms all right there. And you could sample through them. And the one thing I liked about it was every single one I went to, which I think I did like five or six over that two-day period, nobody had the same varietals for the most part. Everybody had uh, Santa Rita Pinot or Santa Ynez Pinot. But then one guy had Nebbiolo, another guy had Sangiovese, another guy had Zinfandel, this guy had Viognier, that guy had Mavazia. It was just a crapshoot of wines. And honestly, they weren't that bad. And I imagine with that weather they have there, it's you can do a lot of different varietals up there. The one thing I've seen about this region is that people do a lot of hodgepodge wines, though. Oh, yeah. You get a lot of... I'm going to throw everything together and see what happens. It's like Arizona, but successful. <laughs> oh, I've, I don't think I've ever seen more varietals listed on the back of a bottle than some of the wines that have come out of this this area. Oh, yeah, that's true. There was one kitchen blend. They were like, what would you think of this? I'm like, I don't even know. And there was like 19 grapes on the back You're of the like, bottle. Would you put 3% of everything in it? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah no joke. Do? Like... Dude, that Santa Barbara is a weird city. Honestly, I liked it, but it's so rich. And so poor at the same time. And the weather's perfect. You know, and we I I just got down there after the fires of 2017. So the mudslides had happened that night I pulled in that took out that Montecito area. I mean, we saw the helicopters and everybody going over there. And we were walking around the city. And uh, man, those mountains, you know, they're just right there up against the coast with this town. And you could walk down from the top of the main road down to the pier. And there's all these awesome bars, a couple breweries, really nice shops. There's a Scientology building right next to a Christian science center. And I'm like, you kidding me? Really? Like, that kind of speaks a lot about this area. And then there's just, they're not even like hobos. They're just, I don't know what the right word is, like vagabonds, vagrants, whatever. But like a little tent city you know, nobody's actually begging for money. They're just, they just want to live in a tent on the side of road down in Santa Barbara. It's, it's a weird, rich town. It's real weird. <laughs> I think when you live in a place where the weather only fluctuates a handful of degrees, you start to get be a little unique, so to say. Yeah. You know, I mean, if I lived in a town where it was the coldest 60 and the warmest 80. Yeah, seriously. After, after 30 straight years of not seeing winter, fall, anything, 
you kind of start living like a life like you're in Candyland. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, I think sometimes you just need winners to harden you up and for you to be a little bitter and a little more realistic with the world. Sometimes the world has to slap you around. I think living in Santa Barbara, you don't get slapped around a whole lot. No, probably. It's also, it's California, you know, they're very like homeless friendly. I'm not saying that is a bad thing. Like I just, it's, it's just crazy how many people can you can push into a tiny area <laughs> well the weather is so nice you can be you can live in a tent you can't really you, can. you can't really live in a tent year-round in nebraska well yeah his house my buddy soup's house uh he had no ac they just opened up the window and it, it was beautiful at night that breeze would come through it felt great i just don't know what it's like during summertime you know i was there in april i think i can't remember when that was but yeah i mean i, I love i love that you can go through a cool expensive town drive through and then go up over a hill in 30 minutes and there's just vineyards everywhere and then as you pass the vineyards there's cows and goats and chickens and then you're in a little town and you drive through the main city there's 40 different restaurants all around you and they're probably all delicious and then all of a sudden you're back in farmland and grapeland out of like within a 20 minute period it's a cool area though because i mean the the fresh fruits and the fresh cheeses and like the meats and everything is really great because there is so many ranchers and farmers down there. I mean, so many of the vegetables that we serve in the United States are grown in Southern California. Yeah. I've yeah. never lived there, but I know people that have and they really enjoy no, it. I don't think I can afford to live there. <laughs> if you post up a tent in the corner, it's, That's a good point. it's not you can too live expensive. There. Yeah, right? That's <laughs> I mean, free 99. Free 99. <laughs> so so what do you think of these wines? Like, uh, they're, they're stylistically very different. So I went, I went with these two because A, Cambria's it is a big uh, brand. Like, it's a big brand. I'm sure everybody well, sees it. Well, we discussed this a little bit before the show also, as far as having something that people could find readily also on shelves. Yeah. We can't do every episode with, you know, 20-year-old Barolos. And yeah. I wish I could. I mean, we, <laughs> we, we can at times. But no, yeah, I wanted to get something where it's at Total Wine, and it's also at AZ Wines. So the little tiny mom and pop has it, and then Total Wine has it. And it's a $15, $16 bottle, depending where you're at. Plus, like I said, it's a name brand wine. We used to sell this at Wine Warehouse um, when it was Catherine's Vineyard or whatever. This is Julia's Vineyard. So, and, so uh, Cambria is owned by the Kendall Jackson family. Is it? It is. Okay. This is part of their boutique collection. When Kendall Jackson wanted to... Uh, get into the boutique business, Cambria was one of their main labels that they actually created. And so KJ actually had its own distributors, and they kept actually the distributors of their boutique wines for many years separate than Kendall Jackson. Yeah. So, so Kendall Jackson, as a brand, the winery would be in a large house, something like a Southern Wine and Spirits or uh, a Republic National Distributing or something like that. Whereas the Cambria portfolio and some of their small batch stuff, they had their own small distributor for, and they always kept it separate. That's where here in the Valley was Valley of the Sun distributing. Okay. And when Jess Jackson had passed away, eventually Valley of the Sun got gobbled up by Southern Wine and Spirits. But and slowly all the portfolios got pushed together. Yeah. But for years... Valley of the Sun was a Kendall Jackson boutique house that wasn't allowed to sell Kendall Jackson wines. <laughs> right? I like it, though. That's but, smart, man. That's good. Uh, but separate yourself. Good business. You know, if you want to do boutique wines, you don't necessarily want that in the same bag as the guy who is trying to push K KJ main brand. Yeah. KJ main brand is going to be in large chain restaurants, large chain not fighting retailers. with each other. 
Whereas this is something you got to put a little time and effort into. You got to drag a bag around town to show this to people. So it's funny now that I'm looking at this uh, on the back, the Cambria State Winery Julia's Vineyard, which is all state grown everything. It's Julia Jackson. Yeah, is the proprietor. I didn't know it was uh, the girl or daughter or whoever it is of this. Yeah, the, it's the next family members that inherited it after it's just pa- like Mandavi passed away. All the Mandavi kids are doing their own things. Mm-hmm. So my my initial thoughts of I opened them uh, starting with the Cambria. This is a super approachable Pinot. This is exactly what I think most people who drink who want to get into Pinot would start with. I think it's good. There's a jamminess to it. There's a richness to it. The nose is very inviting. There's a lot of fruit. There's a spiciness on the nose. I can't quite figure out what it is. I'm pretty sure it's from the oak on it. The oak is not dominating the wine in any way. But it's definitely, I can tell personally, that it's definitely from a little bit warmer of an area because it's just a bit richer. The alcohol isn't high. It's not burning by any means. I I think this is a great introductory Pinot. Like, I'm really actually, I'm, in, I'm enjoying it. You know when you buy, like, a, a good grape juice from the store, like a rich grape juice? When I'm talking about grape juice, like, um, like that Welch's white grape juice or something like that, it's got a... A lot of sugar in it, and because of that, it's weighted in the mouth. Yeah, it just feels heavier versus something like water. Like to me, this has a lot of extra weight, and to me, it's almost like almost sweet in a way. This reminds me without the sugariness, though. It, it reminds right. It's not, it, gonna, it's not coming across sweet. There's, but I, I get what you're saying with the the weight of yeah, the wine. And, and but also to me, it does come across almost like a sweeter Pinot. I does. mean, everybody has different palates. People. There is no right answer to any of this, and sweetness is actually one of the toughest things to pick up in wine overall because it can be masked as other things and things true, can yeah. throw, mine comes across you off. on my tongue. But if I don't get it, I have had people like yourself. I think you and I one time even had like not an argument, but like we were discussing this. You had a sweet wine one time. You're like, dude, this wine is sweet, and it wasn't coming that way to me. I talked to somebody else, and they're like, yeah, we left sugar in there. I'm super sensitive to sweet stuff, though. Yeah, so that makes sense. I'm not. How often do I get dessert at a restaurant? Yeah, but I'm super sensitive to sulfites, like, because I smell them all the time. Like, I can smell if I open something, if they left a little too much, and I need to let that glass sit for a minute. Like, to me, this, it, it's a rich Pinot. I would doubt that this is 100% Pinot. I would not be surprised if there was 5% of something else or 8% of something else blended into it. It's, it's, it's not dark like some of the other ones like that I've had out there that I know for a fact they're blending 20% of other stuff into it. Yeah. And, and to me, it could be the fact that you're right. Santa Maria is a little warmer, so it's producing a wine that's a little richer on the palate. Whereas now the Foley, you want to talk about the Foley? Yeah, let's go to the Foley. I just want to finish on the Cambria thing. Yeah, please. Is, sorry. Is I... When you filled the glass up to that brim... There was a tinge of a darker, I'm not going to say purple because that'll come off as a different one, but there is a tinge of different color. And again, it could be coming just from a, just from the warmer climate that it's from. But, you know, yeah, I mean, maybe people will mix them into it. I mean, good, good business. And the end of it is, you know, you want to make a product that people like while being true to who you are. And I think to make a $15 decent Pinot, I don't think people take offense to that they did mix something into it. Depending because this is like we're talking from a cons- consumer aspect, we're not talking from like a purist aspect. But this is great. I think they did a, a good job. And like we like we just opened this what like an hour ago, barely forty minutes ago. I don't mind them blending a little something into a wine. I mean, the greatest wines of the world they do blends. It's true. I mean, yeah. it, it's just like being a chef. Like I love eating a good. Yeah, steak. I guess you're gonna put a fish on your plate. You're gonna add I mean, some stuff to it. Yeah, like. 
man, grilled fish is awesome. But you know what? Season that little bit of that fish with a little bit of salt and pepper, and it's way better. I mean, that's, sometimes that's all you're doing is you're taking your Pinot Noir and adding a little salt and pepper. Exactly. So, yeah, so Foley time. This is Foley, and this is from Santa Rita Hills. So, same year. It's all 2015. I'm not actually sure about the vintage of 15 for it. We can check on that one a little later. Smells or tastes like earwigs. Is that, was 15 an earwig year? I don't know. <laughs> I got a little smokiness, and now I'm, like, super, like, freaked out. You got the out. smoky characteristic? I'm I, kind of freaked out about it now all the time. Every time I have a smoky wine. The ashtray characteristic? It's going to literally wig me out. Ching. Wow. Was that on purpose? <laughs> no. no, your face, your face was definitely surprised. <laughs> your face was surprised as you were saying that, as if your brain knew what you were gonna say and it still came out and you were still caught off guard. Wow. <laughs> that was that was unique. That wow. was a fun thing to watch. I'm glad I got to experience that. Holy well, <laughs> as you know, my mouth and my brain are not always attached. Yeah. So clearly. <laughs> sometimes like when something happens with one and the other, and they're like, wait, what'd you just say? Yeah. It's funny because now that you say the smokiness, because I was going to say there's a smoky characteristic, but I don't know if I'm online. I didn't grow around, grow up around smokers, so ashtray is hard for me unless I physically go now and grab an ashtray and take a smell, which I'm going to have to now that he said that. But um, see, I'm not, I'm not getting the smokiness really on the nose. It was more, I think, on the palate. It was my initial thoughts. It's my very first thought of when it went into like when I first tried. I was like, this got a little smokiness. And by the way. Those of you who are listening that didn't listen to the Sean Tevick episode, go back, listen to that episode. Sean has some enlightening stuff for oh, us yes, about smoke does. taint. People say, oh, this is a smoke-tainted wine. However, maybe there was no smoke that rolled through. <laughs> it was just something involved from smoke. And where the, where that scent often comes from in your wine. Um, it's really interesting. I want to sleep. Yeah, like, you got to go back and listen. Got to go back and listen. Got to go back and listen. It was actually one of the most shocking things I've heard. And it's gonna, uh, blew my mind. It's going to freak me out now for the next like 50 years. It's something that from now on till the day I die, I will always think if I smell this thing, I'm smelling that particular thing yeah, causing it. It's called wigging out. Wigging out. I like it. <laughs> So, all right. So, all right. First initial impressions. I clearly like this one way more. I'm going to go past the nose and start with the taste first. I like the style of Pinot Noir. Uh, it's light-ish, but it still has like a decent structure of body to it. So it's heavier. This is a good wine to sit around and talk about with people who like wine. The Julia's Vineyard is something you drink with all your friends. You know, it's not the showcase of the evening. It's uh, It's the pepper on the table like you can use it or not the foley's like the salt like you're gonna want to use it with what you're going with i like this foley a bit it's not as heavy on the santa rita hills nose that i usually get from some of them it's a little more pulled back the fruits there acidity is definitely there it's a little leaner it's, it's definitely it, lean it's not as round as the cambria it's definitely not as big yeah i think somebody who is Maybe does hasn't really had a lot of Pinot Noir before. Maybe has had some different blends and stuff like that. Would enjoy the Cambria because of its roundness. And like I said, for me, I get that little bit of RS, that little touch of extra sh- residual sugar on it. Um, whereas this to me is much leaner. And this to me, a more... Someone who likes more a more refined Pinot Noir, I think would gravitate more towards this. But there's that, that dirty ashtray thing that's kind of throwing me off. So I'm getting more tannin on this than I did the Cambria. Without a doubt, yes. Yeah. Like, it's definitely on the front of my lips, like a lot more. It feels like there's more tannin structure to this one. Which is funny because this is a, a lighter-bodied one. It is. It's definitely not as vibrant. And it's lighter in the glass, but it's got more grip. 
This maybe was one of those wines that you could give it an extra year or two. So it's from, yeah, Santa Rita Hills, but it's, what does it say? Rancho Santa Rosa is the vineyard that it's from. That's an interesting conversation to have is aging Pinot Noir. Yeah, and we're going to have that with a lot of people. I feel like between the average consumer and then people like you and me and then a guy like Jason, once he gets his, like, you know, doing his master and everything, that's going to be a long battle. Some people, I prefer mine newer with a little age. I know some people are diehards, like, you got to let it age 20, 30 years. The and then good, some the, people the ones, open yes. up a box and drink it that evening. I've rarely been exposed to California Pinot Noir that has aged gracefully. It has fallen apart rapidly over the years. And There's most, very few that I've had, yeah. Most of these wines should be consumed in their youth. Um, there are even some of the quality producers. Now, I'm generalizing, and yeah. I know that somebody's going to be like, well, my Pinot can go. No, I'm but you're an Italian person. You know the Italian stuff that go. You're not too familiar with the I've California been exposed stuff. to great Burgundies where opening a great Burgundy that's 15 years old, you're still killing a kid. Like, yeah. It's slaughtering babies. Like Some of these wines, you want them to get to 20, 30 years old. You're drinking DRC that's five years old. You're wasting money. I have never had the holy grail of burgundies. I haven't had the holy shits of burgundies. I've had a couple, wow, that's a really good burgundy, but that's $100. That's nothing in burgundy world. I've had a ton of California Pinot that we drank within like two, three years kind of wines, and only a couple handfuls that year have been aged. But I have had one that I still remember well, and I couldn't believe how good this was. It was from Schoolhouse Vineyard, and that's up on, it was either Spring or Diamond. I'm pretty sure it's Diamond Mountain in Napa Valley. And he's like one of the only Pinot guys out there. It's this little bowl up in the mountain. I think he got like nine acres of it. And the guy pulled out a Pinot Noir from the 60s, and it was stunningly good. Like it felt like as if they had just made it, and it was perfectly peaking. Like it was still fruity. It was still rich. It had all the acidity, but the earthiness was creeping out. Like honestly, it might have made it another 15, 20 years. I couldn't believe it. This is the wine that was made in a time where Vietnam was getting started, the Cuban Missile Crisis was happening. You know, it's just, it was awesome. But then, like I said, I've had some from awesome producers, like name brand producers, like a William Selium, where I was like, that just, it's over the hill and it's, you know, 15 years old. And I know they make great Pinot. I'm, I'm a member of William Selium. It's one of the only clubs I have, but I drink their stuff younger, like, you know, within the five to 10 year period and even that 10 year period. I don't know. Uh, one of the... Members of Hanzel Winery came into town with two magnums, one of Chardonnay, one of Pinot Noir, and both. That's a good vineyard. Yeah, uh, both of which were like twenty plus years old. I wish I could remember the actual vintages. It was something like ninety six and ninety eight, or something along those lines. Both magnum format to showcase what his vineyard could do with aged Pinot and Chard. It's kind of cheating a little though. And it why? Because it was magnum. Because they're magnums. Not really. Not really. Not to me. I don't put Mark West in a magnum and age it 10 years and see what happens. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> like, Have you ever seen the five liters of that Rosso Toscano at Costco? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's going to hold up. Yeah. So I couldn't believe it. Like we actually tried the wines during the day and I was out working with a producer that day too. And we came across each other. We tried each other's wines and we decided at night to meet up for dinner, finish off what was left in our wines. I think I was showing like great Brunellos and he was like, I love Brunellos. I'm like, I love your Pinot and Chardy. He's like, let's all do dinner and we'll finish off all the bottles. And we actually did that that night and it blew me away. 
actually have his number and contact information in the back too. Somebody to visit when we go out and that's awesome because i've had their we poured their chardonnay for an event and honestly i loved it i loved every bit about that chardonnay i want to say i want to say the chardonnay that he had was actually older than the pinot i'm trying to remember which one was actually older but i was stunning both of them were if i closed my eyes i would have thought they were burgundy and i don't say that about many california pinot noir and chardonnay producers i've only said that about one chardonnay producer and that was mayakama's vineyard it had a 2006 chardonnay because, you know, they do that 10-year, they release one now, and then they also release like a 10-year-old one. And I sat there, and I had said originally, I actually thought it was a uh, uh, like a dulled-down Viognier at first, just because the way it kind of came off. And then after a while, I was with Oscar and Todd. I was like, I think it's a white burgundy, probably like a you know decent $40 bottle of white burgundy. And they were like, no, it's Mayakamas. You know, it's, it's, it was delicious. But I've never... One of my favorite wines is from Wayfair. It's their Chardonnay. But it is as thick as a milkshake. It is a huge Chardonnay. And it is not something you sit there and you just kind of drink down. It's the IPAs of Chardonnay, but I love the way it tastes. It is a monster of a Chardonnay. It's not the champagne of beer. It's the IPA of Chardonnay. It's the IPA of Chardonnay. That's so funny. Hashtag IPA is a Chardonnay. <laughs> yeah, we're going to make that one work. But yeah, actually, that does make a lot of sense because Chardonnay is the most manipulated grape. And right now, IPA is the most manipulated beer. I oh mean, yeah! Everybody wants to dry hop it or haze it or yeah, the trip. haze thing's gotten crazy. Yeah, uh, people that want to do triple hop or Sessions. quadruple hops or uh, sour IPAs, like it is. Li- yeah, it I've, is. Seen, I've had an imperial stout IPA, and I'm like, what? <laughs> but you don't see that with pilsner. You don't see that with lager. You don't see that with a lot of other styles. No. So like it's it's right now. It's IPA is IPA is the only. It is. You're right. It's a good way of putting it's it. The Chardonnay. Chardonnay. Yeah, because you manipulate it any which mm-hmm. way. And sometimes if you just do the basics, it's amazing. Because you don't manipulate Pinot Noir. Like, actually, the less... And I think maybe that's why purists love Pinot Noir so much. Because the more you manipulate it, the more you ruin the, the, the fruit, the varietal, how pure it is and how amazing it is. This grape in its purest form is one of the greatest things on the planet. And once you start to mess around with it and tweak it a little bit, it really... The tweaks show through a lot. So I can kind of relate like a Chardonnay to a, and this is going to be a, like the Chardonnay is the blank canvas. You know, you you put the blank canvas down and then you paint the way you want on it. Chardonnay is that. And then so the winemaker comes in and depending on the site, we'll tweak it a little bit, you know, and the site could be like the paper that you paint on or, you know, the easel that's used. But you paint the way you want. Do you do mallow? Do you do oaking? Do you let the grape hang long? Do you do all these different things? Versus Pinot Noir is an already finished painting, and then it's about your lighting, the frame you put it in, and everything else to make it look good the way it is. So Pinot's site will make it the most amazing grape ever, and then it's up to you, the winemaker, to do the littlest, subtlest things to not ruin an already really yeah. good product. I've had a Pinot Noir from a vineyard site in Russian River that I think is a good site. It's over in Sebastopol. And one winemaker, I thought, did a great job. He let it just be the grape. Like, he just basically made it. He picked it at the right time. And he very, very lightly oaked it and didn't do too much. And I thought it was delicious. And then I had another guy who came and he let it hang for, like, two weeks longer, brought the bricks up, over-macerated, and oaked the hell out of it. And it was no different than if you got a, you know, Mayomi-style Pinot. And it's the same exact site. Just because he could then charge another $25 and, you know, sell it out quick. 
I mean, and it was terrible. Like, honestly, I didn't like it at all. I mean, it's almost a selling point when you're like, oh, I have this Cabernet and he aged it in new oak barrels for a year and then he put it in new oak barrels again for another year. And you're like, two, two, yeah. 200% oak barrel in this Woo. Cabernet. Yes. And But somebody goes, I did slam this, drink it quick. But but if I said, man, I just aged this Pinot Noir in 100% oak barrels. Everybody would lose a mind. People cringe. Like, like literally, somebody that literally right now listening to this is going, ugh. You know, it doesn't yeah. sound good. Like, that's just not a Pinot Noir thing you want to do. Yeah, you hear the the people that talk about, like, natural yeast and then uh, or whole cluster fermentation. Like, I don't hear whole cluster fermentation with cab. You're right. It's the oak on cab. Like, yeah, we got it from this site, but 18 months, 24 months, this, this, this. You're right. Pinot, it's, oh, we did whole cluster. We didn't do whole cluster. We picked it this time. And this free range, bricks. Free range sulfites. Free range sulfites are added. <laughs> Only the <Not> best. GMO. <laughs> yeah. Only the best. Totally vegan wine. <laughs> It's, 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 oh yeah. And the other thing I see on Pinot's more than I do a lot of other things is unfined or unfiltered. It's, I think it's one of those few gapes where you 100% kind of just let nature do its thing. Well, I, I guess Beaujolais. Well, we talk about cowboy decanting wines (laughs) and and throwing your finger in it and beating the hell out of it. I wouldn't do that to a Pinot Noir ever. I wouldn't even think about it. Pinot Noir to me is just so delicate and you don't want to beat it up. You don't want to mess with it. So unfined, unfiltered is actually something, yeah, I get it because once you put that wine in a centrifuge or you put it through a pumping system, it's going to mess with the, the flavor profile. It's going to, I mean, hey, let me put you through a pumping system and see how you feel the next day. <laughs> yeah, well, if you put the mountain through a pumping system, you'd be fine. But you're right. If you were a tiny little person, you'd be beaten the, up and destroyed. The, so a centrifuge is basically you put the wine into a, a device and it spins it. It spins the particulates out of it. At the fair, we had that the, uh, that ride where you get <laughs> yeah. in it. You just lay against the wall. And you, Yeah, we, it, was called, it was called the rotor, like oh. in my area. And yeah, you stick to the wall and if you ate tuna fish like an hour before uh-uh. <laughs> your neighbor it, it your was neighbor's not about good. to experience the tuna fish yeah so imagine being a wine that's getting spun in a circle and when it's all said and done it's probably dizzy it's not feeling too good it's like uh-uh yeah. Whereas unfined and unfiltered is like, yo, man, I'm good. I'm chill. I'm Pino. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Hey, they're the the uh, the Jimmy Buffett crowd of Pinos. Kinda. <laughs> Just like, whatever, man. Like I'm cool. Or the, the Bob Marley good. crowd. The Bob like, Marley crowd. Kind of like don't don't rock my boat, man. Yeah. They're not the fish <laughs> crowd. That's all the the chemical additives. <laughs> yes. They like their 42 great blends, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. It's the only concert I've been to where someone actually said, Hey, you want you want some wine? I'm like, sure. They're like, slap the bag. And they had a bag. They literally had a bag of wine on their shoulder. I love that. And of course, I did it. I've only had that once, and it was at like a random college party where some girl was walking around with a straw in a bag, and I went, "What the fuck?" (laughs) Yeah, I've seen it at fish shows a couple times. So I don't know. Did I did I ask you what you thought about this foley? Because my last comment was it's kind of thin on the palate in the middle, taste wise. Like I kind of lose it, where it tastes great up front, and then it kind of loses flavor, but then it still finishes and kind of holds for a little bit. It's like missing that mid-palate kind of flavor. Yeah, it's super lean. I mean, it's it actually it's got a really long-standing finish where it's just my mouth just keeps salivating and salivating and salivating. Yeah. It's super easy drinking. There's that little touch of smokiness that's kind of thro- Is that what's throwing you throwing, throwing me off, off with this wine and I'm kind of curious at the I'm telling you, it's that whole earwig thing. But I can't remember in 2015 if there was anything. I mean, I'm just looking at the vintage chart just to, you know, see what the year was it's, it's hard to say anything in uh in california because they just have such great years all the time so the the santa maria valley the cambria actually to me has more of a santa rita nose initially than the foley like what i consider santa rita nose uh yeah i'll yeah i agree with that. when someone hands me a glass of wine they say here smell this and i go wow that smells like santa rita hills yeah 
You get that a little bit. The Cambria, you get as a bigger style Pinot Noir. The Cambria? Fruit. You get the fruit in the Cambria. The Foley, you get that. I don't know. What, what is that nose to you? What, like, what does that smell? Because to me, it's flinty. It's rock. It's DE. It's, yeah, it's shale. I don't know. It smells like, I imagine, if a quarry just got pummeled and there, somebody threw fruit in it. <laughs> well, I believe that also Santa Rita Hills has the highest concentration of diatomaceous earth in the soil than anywhere else in California. Is that what it is? Yeah. Because so I know they are, their soil was a lot of DE, and I know that was a, a big lot. thing. It's actually, there's parts of Europe that really pride themselves on having that type of soil, and I know that's the same type of soil is found in the Santa Rita Hills. Just tons of sh- like seashells. And clay or limestone, probably. Yeah, probably it, limestone, but realistically. Yeah, it's, it's the diatomaceous earth. Actually, when, we're, when you're in Santa Rita Hills, all the producers talk about diatomaceous earth. Yeah. Just because it's their selling point. Like, you don't hear it. In Napa, you don't hear it in Sonoma, but every they talk about golden loam or whatever that golden ridge soil that's the whole limestones and shales. But yeah, when you're everything, every winemaker diatomaceous, (laughs) like it's like a drinking game there. Like (laughs) every time they say diatomaceous, drink just some eight bottles later, probably. So, have you been to the blind ghetto before? Not in Lompoc, I went to. I went to Pismo with you. We went to Sans Liege, right? Correct. Yeah, so we did Pismo, and I did Santa Barbara with my buddy Soup. So I've done those two, but I have not done... I haven't actually been into Santa Ynez, so I haven't been to Los Olivos or Lompoc or Santa Maria. So I did the beach towns. So the wine ghetto is actually a self-storage center with a bunch of roll-up garage doors. <laughs> like That's it. all it is. And it was the, the home of garage winemakers. It's a pretty amazing little area because you go there... And I think it's the highest concentration of wineries in California, at least or in the United States. Like, you could walk a hundred paces up the walkway and, and walk past nineteen wineries, and you can't really do like that. Actual wineries, actually not wineries. Rooms. Yeah. Oh, wow, that's pretty cool. Because they're they're all these little custom crush facilities that are all in these little this little industrial complex. Ah. And that's why it's kind of called the wine ghetto because it's like it's got barbed wire fencing kind of going around it, and it feels almost like a little compound. I wonder if that's due to regulations or just because these guys couldn't build a, a ranch, a house or something and build like a full on winery somewhere. I think also the fact that where the wineries set up was away from the actual vineyard sites. They set up maybe a little closer to town and they actually found a, a affordable way to set up. Look at Brennan Malm. We just tried his wine in yesterday's episode. Yeah. And wine ghetto of Heldsburg. Yeah, I mean, he has another winery that just moved to the next door that's doing champagnes, and he's like, I'm going to start doing bubbles, and they're uh, going to let me do it there. Yeah, uh, Rack a, and Riddle. Yeah. Yeah, the, I know which one you're talking about. They do a lot of champagne. For it is, yeah. It's, literally, it's Rack and Riddle's next door. Yeah. But that he's an industrial complex. He's got a roll-up garage door. Yeah. Dude, Rack and Riddle is really... They they do so much work for so many people because who else is going to make sparkling wine? Like, you know, you're not going to set up. It's one thing to make wine in your facility with your tanks and everything, but to do sparkling wine, you have to full on like dedicate yourself to making a facility room or something for it. And you're not going to spend the money to do that. So, all right, that makes sense. Then, yeah, the guys who, you know, if you have enough money and you're like, I've got these 10 vineyards or I can get great from here, I guess a garage, all state style garage, you know, storage unit is going to work perfectly for you. Also, when. You were looking to set up. You wanted a little area where you could do a dual use. You can't afford to buy a winery, but you can afford to lease some land. Or you can afford to buy fruit or have a long-term lease on a, especially down in, you know, Santa Rita Hills before it was well known. You could lease fruit down there pretty eat pretty cheap. Oh yeah, and you could get some pretty amazing stuff. So these guys moved into the wine ghetto, set up operation, did long-term leases of their fruit products, and 
they were good to go. They didn't actually need a winery. They didn't need a big fancy tasting room or anything like that. Oh yeah, I, I imagine the restaurants and little hotels and the little boutique things wanted to stay in home. And in this case, they're like, hey, listen, there's 20 wineries down here in Santa Barbara. We're just going to have their stuff. But, you know, a, a combination of a movie like Sideways and then a cult collector wine, stuff like Sea Smoke coming out of that area, there was a huge explosion. Well, think about all that time of how Santa Barbara has grown over a, let's go with a 300-year period, 400-year period. So you have all the Spanish missions are down there. They've been planting all their mission wine and their church wine and doing everything. And then over a long period of time, it's not like the weather changed. You know, I know climate change is affecting everything, but how much is it affecting that Santa Rita area is probably very minimal compared to some areas because it's always going to get the wind. It's always going to have the fog and it's going to just stay relatively cool. So you have all these missions come in. Eventually, you know, prohibition kills everything. So it's a total reset. And then what, starting in the 60s was maybe when Santa uh, when they started planting more and more and doing more and then the 80s Santa Maria pops out 81 was, was the AV the first AV8 yeah there. so that's 30 38 years ago that's a that's a baby yeah of the, a AV8 so, region yeah Santa Maria was 81 and Cintianez was 83 yeah and then all of a sudden they pocketed a little because Santa Mar- Santa Rita Hills was 2001 and got rechanged in 2006 or whatever it was but and then the newest one Los Olivos was a couple years ago and that's seven this isn't Sonoma where there's 50 of them in one area this is a small region yeah and also these guys were the the redheaded stepchild of the California wine producing community they for were so probably many years. super ignored because you're right they're not anywhere remotely close Paso Robles is way more famous than they are and i think santa barbara's been around longer than paso paris tasting a 76 napa valley on the map you got the guys up in sonoma like carneros and all that yeah they're they're those areas became saturated very quickly and then they're looking at these cowboys down in santa barbara county doing pinot noir look at those rednecks making that wine down there their wine is called the hitchin post and it's it's, it's got a brand on it Bien nascendo oh man we don't want to say that (laughs) but but now you have people like big names that are recognized across the country people like adam lee's wines uh siduri siduri is awesome yeah you know abc's like one of the big people down there aubon clement aubon clement is real good it's funny because i was actually i was thinking of bringing in siduri because i have a couple of them i have the santa rita hills the santa barbara i also have one of their oregon ones but i think that's a special episode because they also do the pisani vineyard up in santa lucia if you have older vintages of that stuff hold it and i'll get we'll see if we can get adam on yeah, because I like Sideri. Sideri was awesome. We used to sell it at a wine warehouse, and the Santa Rita Hills was my favorite. Their Oregon, I thought, was really good. You know, it's such a cool thing about Pinots, man. No matter where you get it from, it's one of the few grapes that you could actually absolutely love it. Just it depends on where it's from. Like, if you don't like Cab, I just don't think you're going to like Cab. You know, no matter where you get it from, whether if you don't like the Big Napa or like the lighter style coming from Bordeaux blends, you know, Italy, I just don't think you're going to like Cap. But if you don't like Santa Barbara Pinot and you love Russian River Pinot, well then, okay, now we know where you might like it. If you love New Zealand Pinot, you might like more Oregon or Burgundy style Pinot. Everything's different, but it's so broad. All right, so let's talk about Pinot Noir. So we have France is the number one producer of Pinot Noir. Is it? Um, I would have assumed America would have been just by our size of area. We have gone through a Pinot Noir explosion since the movie Sideways came out and the popularity. Unfortunately, also, that we are producing a lot of shitty Pinot Noir. That's that's kind of my point, was I assume we were making such bad Pinot Noir, like mass-produced Pinot. We are, but overall, France still makes more Pinot Noir yearly than America makes. Okay. 
It's also the nice thing about Pinot is probably one of those ones where every single country probably has that grape. Every country. Yes and no. More countries, I think, have stuff like Cabernet Sauvignon. Definitely Cabernet Sauvignon. Because it's easier to grow. Yeah. Pinot Noir is not easy to it's grow. Very and it's very particular. It's fickle. So, so you have United States. You have... New Zealand. So number three on that list is Germany. Okay. So they're Blauber... That's Spots Burgunder. Blauburgunder. Or Blauburgunder. I believe is their Pinot Noir. But yeah, uh, Germany produces a lot of Pinot Noir. That probably all stays in-house, too. Globally, it's not as recognized. And yeah, they drink a lot themselves. And in Italy, it's called Pinot Nero, right? Correct. And that's grown up in two places, but mostly most of it's grown up in the northeast, up in Trento, Trentino area, um, up almost in the area that used to be Austria. Um, a lot of people still speak Austrian as their primary language yeah. or German dialects. This is where they're producing a lot of the Pinot Nero. Uh, the that farmhouse that actually had the giant boulder that had fallen off the mountains, yeah. that was a Pinot Noir house. Really? Yeah. Uh, Gotardi is one of the best Pinot Noir houses in Europe that's not from France, and they're in Trento, and their wine is called Blaubergunder. Okay. So it goes by the original name. It doesn't go by Pinot Nero. It goes by Blaubergunder. Blaubergunder, yeah. yeah. Well, well, the other thing crazy about, you know, we're speaking of land of it, think about, obviously, Pinot Noir being what it is, you can make rosé out of it, and you can make a sparkling wine out of it. Yeah. I mean, so it's very versatile too. Well, that's the other thing is that we talk about France growing so much Pinot Noir. How much of that Pinot Noir they're growing is going champagne. into champagne? I see, I didn't think about that. In my mind, I was kind of just thinking Burgundy, forgetting that uh, Jura is there and Champagne is there, and there's a lot of rose, I imagine, from the area. But there's so much just like Bourgogne Rouge, like just red Burgundy that's just produced in France. I mean, there's yeah. a ton of it. I yeah. mean, it's Pinot Noir. So now, obviously, so, creeping over in America, I think, is where you get your diversity a lot more. So then you have smaller countries that produce it. So Italy is a very small little slice of it. Um, New Zealand is a very small little slice. I mean, half of the world's Pinot Noir is produced between France and the United States. Yeah, I believe that. Literally half. Yeah. So the other half is a combination of a ton of different countries. Um, the fourth biggest is Moldova which I don't know what the hell they're doing with it. It's just a weird stat you see, and you're like, really? Huh. Like, I'm not, I'm not even quite sure where it is on the map. But <laughs> I Using know, it to power their cars, maybe? I know that they're like the fourth largest producer of Pinot Noir in the world. It's a pretty big chunk is what they make. I know, it's crazy, that's right? That's not a big country, man. Yeah. yeah. That's a weird stat. But that's another one where they probably just are drinking most of it themselves. Um, Chile makes a lot of Pinot Noir. Chile. I, for, yeah, I can't believe I forgot about that. Yeah, they do a lot but of But Argentina does a good amount. Yeah, Chile makes sense. Um, so New Zealand does it, and there's a one specific area in New Zealand called Central Otago. Yeah. And uh, Otago Pinot Noirs are very sought after globally. They tend to be very bright strawberry-like driven. So what I've heard from this, and I don't know how true this is, but when it comes to Pinot Noir, obviously the sought after is Burgundy. And then the second one was Otago because of how closely related it is to Burgundy while being a little different. I've never had an Otago Pinot. I've never tasted, had one either. That tasted close to Burgundy. Okay. Even tasted even remotely so close. Is, is it like comparing like a Sancerre to a New Zealand they're, they're, Sauvignon? They're always, to me, there's always this bright fresh like fruit characteristic in the otago ones like it's like bright fresh like strawberry cherry juice like see i like, can't wait to so try some of those right yeah. i mean there's no other way to put it it's not heavy like the cambria is when you look at it in a glass it looks like burgundy like 
The Central Otago ones, you can literally read a newspaper through. They're so, you can see right through them. But they're so bright, fresh, fruit-driven to me without being sweet. Yeah. You know? So they're... The flavors, they're all there, basically. Yeah. They're, they're super approachable to somebody who doesn't drink a lot of wine. I mean, to me, uh, Pinot Noir is a great gateway drug into red wines. Someone who drinks white wine or is experimenting goes, I want to start drinking reds. What do you recommend? Pinot Noir is one of the first things I recommend. Really? See, I, I tell people, honestly, to try Malbec. Because I think inexpensive Malbec is super approachable. And so fruity, people get into it. Because I've had bad Pinot. And bad Pinot is real awful. And I am not comfortable with certain... Because I'm not going to say, hey, yeah, you want to try it? Go get this $35 bottle of... I mean, if they're willing to spend the money, I will recommend Pinot. But if they come in and go, I've got 15 bucks, I want to try a red, I point them towards an inexpensive Malbec. Like a good one that I know that I got that's, I think, fruity and characteristic, kind of like that. Yeah, I think... I don't know. Or like a, you just never really know because yeah. everybody's different. Everybody has different taste buds, different palates. Like somebody, I've had so many people say I don't like sweet wines, but then they drink a wine, they like sweet wines. They love Apothic Red or Seven Deadly Sins. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I understand why something like Apothic Red sells so well in the United States because it's sweet. I mean, there's a so much residual sugar in that wine. Someone who normally doesn't drink a dry wine is going to like that wine. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like juice. It's like alcoholic. I'd be intrigued to see how generations from now, as younger kids start getting off of sugar, to watch how those kind of wines disappear. Because, you know, imagine if your generation was hitting the wine stride right now. They would love Russian River. They love Naomi. Like, honestly, like, look at the older folks and what they love to drink. The kids that grew up on having a Coke, and they grew up, they grew up eating popsicles and Otter Pops and all these super sweet stuff over their life period. They love the Mayomis and the Rombauers and the sweet stuff. But now you got these younger kids coming up who are avoiding sugar actively, and the parents not giving it to them. Watch those bland, uh, brands start to dwindle. They're going to drink Chardonnay. It's the but, IP- it's but the Chablis it- style Chardonnay or like heavy, big, oaky. in your face, oaky, over manipulated Chardonnay. I don't think so. I this, think that's going to go away. If if this is a generation that it's drinking double hazy dry hopped IPAs, <laughs> they're gonna, I know. I'm sorry. It's just the reference from earlier. <laughs> You're not, I don't. I don't disagree. <laughs> I don't. But I also think it's the generation that wants the Blachfuchander from you know Germany, just so they can sit there and put the finger up, like mm, I try the fanciest of wines. No, I, th- I, I, I think our generation is going to be a bigger bag of douches of I, wine drinkers than the snobs of I, older generations. I think the big thing with the younger generation is that they want to drink stuff that their parents didn't drink. Yeah, they want to, but also put it in their face. That they drinking it, but they have access to the world's knowledge on their in their hand with the phone. Whereas when you look at a wine shop and you walk into a wine shop twenty years ago, you picked a bottle that maybe you recognized because your grandmother drank it or your dad's friend brought it over to the house once. You're like, oh, my dad's business partner brought this over. It must be good. And it's that's because you didn't have a reference. Where nowadays, someone look at that wall of wine, go. Huh, Spatbergunder. I wonder what that is. And they can just jump on their phone. They got Siri. Spiri. That's a what's, good point. What's, what's Spatbergunder? And, and she'll tell you all about it. Oh, it's a Pinot Noir. Yeah. But they didn't have that reference. So it's much easier for the younger generation to try stuff like the Viennese of the world or the 
the Albarinos of the world or plus there's comparatives. If you've had a Toronto's and you love it and you go, wow, what's a Malvasia or a Viognier and you, yeah, Syriate. Oh, similar styles. Toronto's. You're like, oh, well, it's all kind of floral and big. All right, I'll give it a world. In the Wine Folly book on the bottom of every varietal, uh, so it breaks down every varietal on the very bottom. It says, if you like that varietal, try these and it lists five other varietals yeah, that see, are close. Yeah. So you can go down the rabbit hole and say, okay, I tried this one. Now I want to try this one. I want to go down this one, this one, this one. So, and all of a sudden you're drinking Esqueritos from like, you know, Greece or something like that. I said that wrong, but whatever. Yeah. No, I get you. No, it's a perfect way of kind of describing that because you're right. The more information you have, the more you're willing to try something. However, I also think in the long run that'll pigeonhole people into small things because they'll be like, all right, well, I tried all these. Therefore, I only like Viognier and I don't want to branch. Well, I've said before too, white wine drinkers tend to stick to what they like where red wine drinkers will drink anything. anything. They're, They're a little more... They're open. Yeah, just willing to try things where people that drink white wines often have a style they like. And I will say, I drink both, but my white wine palate is very specific compared to my red wine palate. My red wine palate will drink anything just about. It's funny you say that, yeah, because my white wine, I like high acid whites that I don't like flabby Chardonnays. I don't, there's a, I, there's a very specific type of white wine that I like. It's true, because. You're right. I'll, I love Nebbiolo is my favorite grape, but I will drink any red just to try it. But when it comes to whites, the ones I love the most are the most floral whites. The Kerners, the Viognese, Tarantes, Malvasia, things like that. That that Greek wine that we had at uh, Devoured, that Mikulakala, I assume yeah. that's probably how it was pronounced. Close. Yeah. But it was it, the second I tasted it, I was like, oh, wow, that's so similar to Malvasia in Italy. I like that. And now I have another new wine I like. But in the end, it's all the same super floral, like sweet on the nose, but not on the palate wines. And I don't care if it has acid in it or not. You are, you like the high, you like the, I like uh, high acid. The, uh, that's why I like Rieslings. Yeah. And like, the, the Gruners. Yep. And, and I do like some Rieslings, not all Rieslings, but I do like really floral Rieslings. But I will gravitate. But I don't like Pinot Grigio. I'll gravitate to a Pinot Grigio from a quality producer because I like that high acid white. Yeah. I mean, that's a super high acid grape. Yeah, there's some Chardonnays that I really appreciate. Like I do like Chablis. Um, I I don't like Chardonnay. I will always drink uh, Champagne always because it's just too amazing not to. I don't like Chardonnay. I love I like Burgundy. I love Burgundy. I think there's only like a couple California guys you'll end up liking. I think I've got one of them, and I think the other 20 I have you'll hate. I've been, I've had a lot of great California Burgundy esque Chardonnays. And so, once again, I kind of generalize. I think Oregon eventually will get to a point where some, some Chardonnay guys you'll be like, ooh, there it is. I've had a, many a producer that's been like, try this. This is how I did it. It's barely oat, it's neutral French barrels. I did this, this, and this. I've tried, I'm like, wow, that's delicious. Yeah. It's kind of the nice thing is is the nice thing about America is there's so much land, there's so many different places. Nobody hates anybody, so you're gonna try everybody's regions. Like imagine if you're in Burgundy, you're not gonna drink Jura wines because like I'm in Burgundy, I'm just gonna drink the best. Like you'll reach to Beaujolais, and that's about it. Italy's obviously not drinking their neighbor stuff. In America, it's like all right, cool. I had Russian River, I'm over it. I'm gonna try Oregon now. Oh, I'm a, I had all the Oregon, I'm over it. I'm gonna try Santa Rita now, and you know you can move amongst the entire west coast and eventually somewhere the east coast will pop up like the finger lakes maybe virginia i don't know good luck being in like tuscany and trying to find a calabrian wine yeah nope it's not happening Uh -uh. uh-uh uh-uh 
I don't imagine they sell Barolo throughout most of that country, except for the Piedmont region. But, you know, it's kind of the same way in America, where if you're in a wine producing region, they support themselves. When you're in when you are in uh, Oregon, they have Oregon wines on the menu. Everywhere is either Oregon wines or imports. If you go to Washington, if you're in Seattle, Washington's known more for Cabernet and big style wines. They do not support California wines. You go into a restaurant, if they have a Cabernet on the list, it's going to be an Washington Cabernet Sauvignon or possibly an Oregon Pinot Noir. You are not going to see a California Pinot Noir and you're not going to see a California Cabernet. It, it is literally impossible to sell California Cabernet in Seattle. And what I'm thinking is, is uh, that like, even though you're in Washington, you're in Seattle, you're in Yakima, you're drinking your state, but we're in Arizona. And what do we drink? California Oregon, Washington. We, you and I drink it, Italian. Italy. Yeah. <laughs> you and I will drink Italian to the day we die. But if you're your average consumer and you go on the menu, you know who the guest wines are? The Arizona guys. Like they're the they're the asterisk in the corner. They, oh, by the way, we also have them. Now, yeah, if you're on the state or that region, like if you're in Santa Barbara, you're probably only drinking 90% Santa Barbara or the big guys that happen to also pull from Oregon or Northern Air, like a La Crema pulls from Oregon, Mendocino, these things. But in Arizona, we're drinking from here. If you're in Idaho, you're taking maybe more Washington than California. If you're in Texas, it's all across the board. Vegas, everything you possibly can. But if you're in Florida, New York, any of these major Chicago, big areas, you're taking from California and France. I imagine if you're in France, you're not taking anything from anybody other than France and the region you're closest to. The major cities on the East Coast actually dominate in the import of it, like kind of wise. The French, Italian, Spanish. You have you have so many European transplants. You have so many people with European heritage. You have a lot of proud ethnic cultures. You actually have, you know, little little Italy, you know. Little Italy. You you have areas that are carved out in cities that are very ethnic driven areas and they support their products. Whereas when you're in California, it's very hard to sell imports even though there's you know, there is areas marked out, but it doesn't have that old school vibe, old Italian vibe. Hey, that's an old Portuguese neighborhood. Yeah. That's the old German neighborhood. You go to the old German neighborhood, I guarantee you're going to be, they're going to have a lot of blaubergunders and spatbergunders. Yeah, and beer and bratwurst. Totally. Totally. Well, the one good thing that California has that the East Coast doesn't have, because I don't deny that East Coast doesn't have good wine regions. Obviously, like a hurricane could hit in some crazy weather. And it doesn't get the sunshine Cali does. But the real thing I think Cali is, is you don't have an import area unless you bring it across the country. Otherwise, you got to go through a boat through Panama. So for a long time, the only way to get California or French or Italian wines into Cali was across the entire country. And when you're making such good stuff, you'd rather spend the $5 on a Cabernet bottle than the $15 on a good, uh, okay Burgundy bottle. So therefore, you just take it all. So I think that California, Oregon, Washington area, especially California, got lucky. They got a good window, like a 20-year window of time where it was too expensive to bring your, your European wines across the country. Therefore, they could make it all here and kill it before finally prices caught up with free trade or whatever. Because let's not kid ourselves. If tomorrow they say, hey, there's a tariff on champagne and champagne no longer calls into this country, the sparkling wine, as big as it is now, is going to go even higher. So, you it's, know, there's a there's a lucky draw to that a bit. That's funny. They just announced for the EU that uh, we're going to need visas yeah, to go over there. Yeah. In 2021, you got to pay for it. But you want to know? That's something that everybody in Europe does to come visit us. 
Like people, really? in Amer- people in America are losing their minds about it, and I know. Oh, but, I didn't know that. Oh yeah, you gotta you gotta pay st- a stupid little fee to get your. If you want to come to the United States and spend a week with your family, you gotta fill out a travel visa and pay for it to come visit the United States. Holy as, crap! As I never European. knew that. Yeah, and every time they do it, they have to pay for it. Like you know, some of my video game nerds that come over here for conferences, whenever they come over here, they have to pay that stupid travel fee and fill out their forms and it has to be done months in advance to get it approved and whatnot for them to come for their week. And Wow. I Honest to God. Because I, I, I read that the other day. They're like, starting 2021, you got to pay to go to Europe. I was like, how stupid is that? Are you telling me? We've been doing this the whole time in yes, America? Yes. Wow. And it's like, I don't know, forget what it is, but it's like a hundred bucks or something like that for them to come. So somebody who's the just traveling co- tariff. Yeah. So it's it's basically Europe's going, well, you're going to do it to all of our people. So yeah, now you got to deal with it. So what are you thinking on this last bit on the wines? Yeah, they're, they're horrible. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> these are the worst. Just pour These are going to be uh, cooking wines for the next couple of days. We, 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 <laughs> well, we actually talked about doing some like uh, generic episodes where we have stuff like, you know, you're going to yeah, find yeah, it. Yeah. Well, everybody gets a drink. Everybody uh, the, is the, learning to drink. That you could find in any supermarket or large package store across on the a, nation. On a buy know. the glass menu. In affordable corporate restaurants. You know, when you go into a place like, you know, Olive Garden or Red Lobster or... You know, when these restaurants that's all across the nation, often they have very similar lists. Like, honestly, you find something like Kendall Jackson Chardonnay on so many corporate lists across America. You know, you know the P.F. Chang's of the world where they have, you know, 300 restaurants. K.J. Chard is on every single one of them. Yeah. I imagine Cambria, Julia's Vineyard is going to be on a lot of people's list. I don't know. I don't think they make enough. I think I don't think so. I think also, you know, you can't put some of these on lists if you if you sell out of your wine every year. You can't put it on a corporate wine list. Yeah. Because you can't tell somebody who prints their list at 300 restaurants that you're out of their wine. You're going to substitute something else. I did try and sell a wine to a, a restaurant one time, and they only take their orders in October for the whole year. They say, as long as you can fill our orders all year long, we'll put you on the menu kind of a thing. If they like it, obviously. I was like, wow, really? That's that's a lot. Because <laughs> I have no idea. What if all of a sudden you get uh, 10,000 people in the restaurant, and they all buy the wine, and then... Then what if I run out? Because they don't want to change their menu? Like, all right. Well, some people just don't have the ability to. I mean, think about if you're a large corporate restaurant and you're printing the same list at 300 units, to print your wine list or print your menus might be a $150,000 expenditure as a company. Yeah. So because you ran out of your wine and you're like, well, I'm out of this for the next three months. Can we just substitute that? You're like, I can't do that at 300 restaurants and compliance in 50 different states. So you have to have something that it's never going to run out. You know, you just need to have that, that wine fountain. that's just going and <laughs> stuff, stuff like Mondavi's of the world and the KJ's of the world can meet. And they could keep that wine flowing 24 seven. The, the, in Italy, you know, people like the Banfis of the world, they can keep it flowing. It's never going to stop. Yeah. It's a good point. You know, where honestly, that's why somebody like KJ wanted to get into a different side of business. And that's why they kept something like Cambria separate for so many years because they wanted to produce a good quality, small production wine, but also have the powerhouse that pays the bills and keeps, you know, the grandchildren's college funds, you know, full, stuff like that. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, I get it. Look at somebody like uh, Behringer. Behringer makes one of the best Cabernet Sauvignons produced in the United States every single year. Where do they get the money to produce one of the best Cabernet Sauvignons? From making White Zivendel. Yep. We got white Zivendel money. You could do a lot of shit. And also, we didn't talk about it, but uh, uh, Schaefer died this week. Yeah. Was it 92? 
94. Good I for think. him. Way to make it that long. What an icon in Napa to have a Schaefer hillside and all those amazing wines that he has done. I recently had one of his and it's not my style of wine. They got a huge like philanthropy profile and, you know, honestly, just the winery he built alone is pretty impressive. So I have a very special Magnum in the cooler back there. It's the only uh, bottle that I don't know if I'll ever open. <laughs> it'll it'll get opened under the most extreme right circumstances. It'll get open when I'm way too drunk probably to open it. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll 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 stop you from that one. We were talking about that in the last episode. How like often? Yeah, yeah, yeah but there's a dip. But you also would you call me two bottle Damien? Two bottle Damien. <laughs> You're like when two bottle Damien comes out. Yeah, two bottle Damien. <laughs> two bottle Damien opens every Barolo. <laughs> Sober Damien's like, oh no, no, we're just gonna have this one Barolo. <laughs> Merdrick Rosso tonight. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It goes Rosso. <laughs> yeah, Brunello Barolo. <laughs> Sober Damien is Longe Nebbiolo. Slightly buzz Damien is Barbaresco. Yeah, Barbaresco or Young Barolo. Two bottle Damien is Kanubi. It's Kanubi. <laughs> like that's the progression of alcohol for me. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it's so true. There's so many nights I've woken up and I've come out and I've looked at the corks on the table. I'm like, fuck. I've had that. Yeah, you get those couple nights where you're just like having such a great time with your friends and you're like, God, I know it was great. I'm glad they're happy. I was happy, but fuck. Fuck, I wish I kept that wine. Yeah, there was one night I came out, and I remember and the bottle was like, there was like half the bottle in it, like sitting oh. on the counter. And I was like, that is, I don't even remember opening it. What the hell was I thinking? Yeah. I'm pretty sure I probably had a date over or friends, and that's what it always happens. Yeah. It's always how it works. Got to show off a little bit, you, you know? You have to. So, I mean, I really do like Santa Rita Hills wines. I wish I had more. I wish I would have had a chance to try some of the early vintages of, of Sea Smoke. Because I haven't. I haven't. Didn't try like your original 10 or the original Southings or anything. I'm sure one day we'll find somebody that has one. We'll think, get lucky. And I think they've changed too over the years. I've gotten think. very big. And I don't think they have the original leases that they had on their property. Probably not. Most people don't. You know, unless you own your vineyard sites, it's you're not going to keep them. We talked about this, you know. Well, if well, it changes, you got a whole new product. Somebody like Sea Smoke saying, say you were leasing this piece of property for 10 or 15 years. And the wine was getting great press every single year. You're selling out. And then some other big guy comes along with a big checkbook and says, hey, I want to buy that lease and I'm willing to pay this much. Now you are kind of SOL looking for new vineyard sites. You're looking for something else now. And you're an established winery and people are expecting a certain level of product to be put out. Yeah. And now you're looking for a second vineyard site because your main vineyard site just sold out to a big guy with a big checkbook. Yeah, and that happens very often. All the time. Or, or a big brand comes in and just straight buys the vineyard site, and now it's theirs. Fuck, that's just happening way too much right now. Everywhere. Stagecoach got bought. Tokelons got bought. Mary Edwards just sold Mary out. Mary Edwards just sold to Rotterer. Yeah. Is it going to come to the day where we have, like, just three wineries that just own everything? Three distribution companies might own everything. Yeah, I, I wouldn't doubt. <laughs> Are they going to have, like, the, the distribution wars? Like, is that going to come down to, like, literally, like... <laughs> <laughs> Like, it's crazy what's going on in the distribution business. The fact that there are a third of the amount of distributors nationally now than there were 10 years ago. And there's twice or three times the amount of wineries. Oh, it's not going to change either. You know, there'll be like, they'll just keep gobbling and gobbling and gobbling till somebody wins. And then eventually that person will have everything, realize they don't want it all. And then it'll, it'll be like a loot chest when you hit it and it spills everything. It's kind of funny, though, if you think about it. Like, okay, so I own a distribution business... And 
Come keep, on. Keep, keep talking. I have, I have a bladder if, if, of an if, old, if, if, old man. If, if I own a distribution business and I'm doing very well with 15 brands and then I decide to sell my distribution business to a large company, those brands, at least in this state, go to that company, but there's no law that keeps them then from coming to my new company after I open it. Where in, say, something like Vegas... Vegas or Nevada, Nevada is a franchise state. That distributor actually owns your brands and they can actually trade your brands. It's one of the weirdest things. When I found out that I could go to Las Vegas one day and my brand was traded, they're like, yeah, we traded you for Kendall Jackson. That didn't happen, but I have no control over that. Like if I own Damien's Cookies and you, Bill, are selling Damien's cookies in your shop. You can't say, well, I am now going to give your cookie brand to Tim. And Tim has all the rights to your cookie brand. You're like, but I don't want to be with Tim. I'm instead going to go with Jimmy. And you're like, you can't go with Jimmy because I traded you. Vegas has that law where once a distributor has my brand, they own my brand. And I can't get out. I, I could pay a lot of money to get out, but that's it. It's crazy, but here in Arizona, literally, I can start a distributor, sell my distributor to somebody else, start a new distributor five years later, and have all my old friends and wineries come back to me and start all over, and whoever just bought my company for $10 million is SOL. So I kind of see both sides of this. The franchise laws around the nation where I think there's something like 12 states right now that have franchise laws, and the franchise laws essentially say that once a distributor sells a certain amount of your product, they own the rights to the distribution of that product in your state, and you cannot pull out. So example, say, say, say I'm selling my wines to you, John, and you're doing a really shitty job. <laughs> you used to do a good job, but now you're doing a shitty job. I can't fire you. You own the rights to my brand, and I can't do anything about it. Well, being a free market, you should be able to fire that guy. I think the thing that blows my mind is was obviously the franchise laws I think are really stupid. I think free market's a little bit better for this. But the thing that's crazy to me is that these distribution companies, these big guys, are buying their wineries and vineyards now. That's what's changing to me is crazy. It's no longer we now represent Cambria. We now own Cambria. And Cambria is now you know a product of our company. And we want it to be different. We want it to change. We want it to be a little sweeter. We don't want it to just have a... 100,000 bottles. We want it to have 2 million bottles because we can mass produce this. And all because they don't care about the juice in the bottle. They just want the label. It's funny that's all that matters. It's funny you say that because both of these wines on the table have a history in the distribution business. They are. I mean, uh, honestly, look at Chuck Wagner's. I think one of the few guys who did it well and got away with a lot of murder was the Wagner family. They create a crazy label. They sell off ludicrously and go away. <laughs> well, so like I was saying earlier, Cambria is owned by the Jackson family, and yep. they created a distributor to sell their wines to be separate from the, the people selling KJ. Yeah. It's a great way to kind of loophole your way in is we're going to create a winery and create a separate distribution company to do it. Chateau St. Michel did that. Chateau St. Michel has all like the vast majority of distribution and land in Washington. They have a ton of land and grapes. But their management company has stuff like Tiganello. Yeah. They sell. But so here you got Foley Wines. Bill Foley actually owns Epic Wines of California, so they own their own distributor network as well. So, because they've realized that you can't put your wines necessarily into a big house, something like a Southern, where Southern might have 65 wines from Santa Rita Hills in their portfolio. Yeah. 
Where So Bill Foley goes, why would I put my wine in theirs? I'm just going to start my own distributor. I'll represent other people's wines, but I'll make my reps sell my wine first. Exactly. And so that's what that was the business model that Cambria used to have with Valley of the Sun. That is the business model that Foley has with Epic in California. Winebow Imports has done that as well. Winebow Imports has bought a whole lineup of distributors up and down the East Coast, and now they just did it on the West Coast. They're buying distributors. Yeah, Family Vinters or Family whatever. I forget the name of it. Uh, they were a distributorship up and down the East Coast through like Georgia and Maryland and those states. They were all bought up by Winebow. Wow. So Winebow is the importer, but they also now are their own distributor. That's what Foley's done now, too. Uh, Skernick just started their own distributor in California because they got sick of a shitty distributor model, not selling their wines or not being able to sell their wines. So they just started their own distributor so they could focus on their high-acid whites. It sounds like it's just kind of what's happening to like beer in the 70s where... At one point, one time, I think there was only eight breweries around, you know, whether it was like Rolling Rock, Budweiser, Coors, because everybody just kept buying each other up, buying each other up. And then finally, everybody got sick of it and just boom, explosion of smaller craft guys. And they kind of came up. My only concern is I'm not as worried about the label as much. Once I start disliking a wine, I myself, and I know this isn't the average consumer, I will drift towards different wines. Um, if I stop liking a wine, I will try a new label. I will try a new grape from a different area and go from there. You know, if you're like one of the biggest guys uh, in Santa Rita and all of a sudden I don't like it, I'll try a different smaller winery and go. I'm more worried about once they start getting their hands on really good vineyard sites and kind of like go, well, we don't want one ton. We want 1.1 tons and 1.2 tons and 1.4 tons and 1.8 and then two tons just so they can make more from a site. Like, you know, if you've got a name like Tokalon in Napa, which is the one of the most famous vineyards in Napa. You can sell your fruit for so much that your bottle is $200. But if you want to make that $250 bottle and you want to make more, well, instead of making one and a half tons an acre, now you're making 1.75 because you're just kind of like, well, who cares? You know, our customers don't really know. Like you're honestly kind of, I think it's super disingenuous is you kind of look at the customer and go, well, you don't know. All you're doing is buying the label. Therefore, you won't care that we're changing the product drastically. Yeah. Shareholders just want profits. Yeah. You know, they're not the farmers. And that's unfortunately when you become a big company, that's what starts happening is you lose that personal aspect of it. Like, yeah, so Mary Edwards just sold out, but there was something special about Mary Edwards wines because Mary Edwards made them and her name was on the label. I'm intrigued to see how this goes because Rotterer is so well known. I'm I I'm not a Mary Edwards fan and like not in a I don't dislike Mary Edwards. I just it's not my style Pinot, but I have been lucky enough to go to their winery and try their wines. And amongst their prof, like their profile or the portfolio, I, there was a bunch in there that were really, really good. And she was there earlier, like, you know, greeted people, talked to her and went away. But like she built this thing, you know? So now you have this big conglomerate coming in who is well well known for taking care of their brand, taking care of things. Well, let's see what happens. You know, maybe who knows what'll happen to that brand. And I think you could pull it off with, and I don't blame her by the way. I guarantee she got a check yeah. that has three zeros on the million. And she's of, looking to retire, get out of the business. Yeah. I get it. She not just retired. Her, her kids are retiring yeah. and her grandkids are retiring off of this money. But you know, you could, you can buy out products like breweries and distilleries and make that product every single year and duplicate it, man, it's going to be tough with wine to like, you almost need to just rebrand it. Like 
you know, Davis Bynum becoming Thomas George. Thomas George, yeah. Like, they just said, you know what? Let's not buy a winery and continue trying to do what they do. Let's just start again. I wonder if that'll happen with the big guy, like a Silveroak or a Rombauer, where they start to lose all the low-end things and like, oh, man, crap, we're starting to lose things. Do we rebrand? Is it Rombauer Plus? Is it now just Rom? So we're now we're no longer Silver Oak. We're just S Oak. We're Stoke from Starita Hills. Starita Hills. We're now Soak. So something that Sean, oh, that's a disgusting sounding name. We're so, Soak. So something we were talking about on the Cabernet episode, we were talking about corked wines and we we're talking about corked liquors and if a liquor could be corked or not. And you were saying, well, it's got such a high alcohol level, it's going to kill the TCA. And I said, well, what if I just throw a a cork that has cork yeah. taint in there, will it affect it? And you're like, I don't think it will because it's got such high alcohol. Well, I got talking to Sh- Sean Tevick, or Sean Tevick actually was texting me today after listening to that episode. He's like, oh my God. He's like, I had to stop the episode and actually text you this. He goes, I've had s- quite a few corked liquor bottles. Really? He's like, I've been drinking at home tequila and sodas. Like a refreshing drink, I guess, when he gets off from work. <laughs> and he's like, I have a corked <laughs> bottle of tequila at home right now. I will bring you guys. You no can try way. it. And he's oh, like, I got to try that. Yeah. So he's like, I've had it with multiple bottles. He goes, I've had it with Grand Marnier. And then all of a sudden the light bulb went off. I go, I had a heavily TCA affected cork in a Grand Marnier bottle that I had once. I remember it. I remember that horrible smell, but I didn't remember it affecting the liquor at all. And he brought up also an interesting thing. He goes, I've noticed it in hot sauces recently. Really? Hot Ch- sauce. Ch- Cholula has cork. A lot of those hot sauces have cork. Holy, I who's to say that. that a cork doesn't, if it has TCA, it's not going to affect your hot sauce, too? He goes, I've been noticing it a lot in hot sauces. I wonder if that would do it with honey, because I've had corks in honey before. I'm, I'm sure it could affect a number of different products besides just wine. And ooh, yeah, this was actually something I want to dive farther down the, the rabbit hole. I was going to bring it up earlier in the episode. And as we mentioned, Thomas George, I was like, oh, I forgot to bring up Sean and talk about this cork. That's crazy. That's amazing that something that small can affect that many different things yeah and you're seeing cork also used in a lot more products whereas in the 80s 90s it was screw top it was plastic capsule where you're seeing more whiskeys now with cork in them you're seeing uh tequilas with cork in them you're seeing beers with cork and what if you start seeing you're gonna start seeing screw tops on uh like super high-end liquors i wonder if that's actually a legal thing you know like they're not gonna allow for a screw top on like a bottle of Johnny Blue. I'll tell you, the hot sauce thing blew me away though, because yeah, like Chula, Cholula, see, uh, I'd be so mad if I had a hot sauce that was corked. Corked. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? As, imagine just sitting around a table with all wine people trying to explain to them that you're like, my hot sauce is corked. Seriously, and like, seriously, guys, no, my, bro, my my sauce is corked. They're also, like, by the way, the odds of anybody having hot sauce at a table with wine is slim to none true but most of us wine guys enjoy our hot sauces too man like, i'm gonna be i've it's crazy because as much as i drank where where would i have had corked beer like duval maybe duval is the only one i know that comes with the cork that i drank before i, I know have, there's a lot i know there's a lot i just haven't had that many. i've had a couple bombers, bombers. like like expensive yeah. bombers chimay um odell's has done some of their limited release stuff odell is so good uh yeah their freak was always in cork Oh, it's that time of year where St. Lupulin comes out, and I'm so excited for it. It's my favorite beer. Is it in cork? No, it's, it comes in a keg at Citizen Public House. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> All right, dude, let's wrap this episode up, man. Let's talk and finish up these uh, final thoughts on these two wines. So huh? my final thoughts on this is, uh, so I'm going to start with the Cambria. So my final thoughts with the Cambria, Julia's Vineyard, I think this is an awesome wine for introductory Pinot. 
I think as somebody who wants to get into Pinot, this is a good way to start. It gives you a nice, big, jammy uh, Pinot Noir that, to me, doesn't come off sweet, but has sweet flavors like strawberries, raspberry, red fruit in like general. And the oak is empowering. The, there's like no tannin structure to it, so it's real soft and easy. This is clearly, if you were sitting on a, a restaurant and this was on a menu, this would go well with whatever you're eating. The Foley... That's where the uniqueness of Santa Rita Hills come in. It's got the Santa Rita Hills nose. Um, it's got this like flintiness, very light to me. It's not as powerful as some is. It's um, man, it's 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 way more complex. There's a lot to it. I like it. I love the nose. I love the initial flavor. I think it's thin on the mid palate. Uh, it kind of loses flavor to me in the middle, but the finish is nice. It kind of lingers. It holds. It's so easy drinking. It's soft. Um, I definitely think it's a great food-friendly wine. So overall, Cambria is not something I would just drink to drink. Cambria would be something if somebody poured it, I wouldn't be upset. I think all people who want to get into wine, uh, into red wine in general, Cambria is a great way to start. And the Foley is something to give a shot with and see if you like Santa Rita Hills. That's a good overview. I agree. The Cambria is a good novice Pinot Noir. What I mean by that is someone who maybe so, even somebody who's like, "Ooh, I like Zivendels. I want to try Pinot Noir. Oh, yeah. That's a good one, too. Wh- which yeah, one yeah, would yeah. I try? I'd be like, Cambria would be Cambria. a... Cambria. Because it, it is, it's almost like a Zivendel drinker's Pinot. And I'm not saying it's close to a Zivendel, but it's got that richness. It's got that, the richness of it. That's, yeah. That somebody who enjoys that style wine that wants to enjoy a Pinot, this would be their style. If someone goes, I love Zivendels, recommend a Pinot, I'm not going to be like Oregon. Yeah. No, I, I get what you're saying. So, no, that's a perfect example. So, so that's that's where my brain kind of goes with this one. There's that weird smokiness, though, that comes across in this Foley that just got me thinking you're that thinking I can't get past for some reason. It's not a bad thing. There's a little smokiness to it. To me, out of these two wines, I prefer the Foley over the Cambria because I like the leaner style Pinot. To me, it's a little more of a pure expression of Pinot. Um, plus, I do really enjoy Santa Rita Hills. I mean, tends to be a good acid that comes out of the Santa Rita Hills Pinots, too. And this has that. It has that little bit of zippiness to it. You can't go wrong with either of these. And I believe your price point you kept on these is pretty affordable. Yeah. So I went with the price points of, and only knowing this, that one day we will do a holy shit Santa Rita Pinot. Oh, yeah. Uh, and we'll we'll talk about better, high, like real high ends, like the high end ones will do it. I wanted to get something where people can buy and not have to really worry. The Cambria is roughly 16 bucks. Like the average price is probably $16. The Foley's average price was, I think, was like 27, 28 area because I want to get the little more in. And also you're going to pay more when it comes to once you start focusing on the AVAs. Like if it was just Santa Yanez, it would have been 20 bucks. But because of Santa Rita and it's more focused, it's now 28 so it's kind of the same thing as saying Napa, it's going to be so much money. But if you say Rutherford, it's going to be so much more money because it's a better, it's a better AVA is what it comes down to. So I think a good $30 for Santa Rita is what your majority price point is. I was looking through the, and I went to Total Wine because that's the figure where most people would go. If you walked in, you're going to see about 25, 20 different Pinots from Santa Rita. And most of them are going to fall into the 25 to 35 area. And there'll be a couple that are in the $50, but the $50 ones are real high end, you know, real well built, single vineyard, estate grown, small family kind of guys. So it's something I wanted to get so that, A, it's a big guy's name. A lot of people know William Foley, um, great winemakers, and I, I, I had to give it a shot and see what it was. Plus, I never had it, and I wanted to try it. And I feel with Pinot Noir, you really, 
for for a for a equal quality wine with another varietal, you're going to spend 50% more with Pinot Noir. What I mean by this is you can get a fantastic $20 Cabernet Sauvignon that'll knock your socks off. That same quality of $20 cab, if you want it in Pinot, is going to cost you 30 100% agree. And that's just the way Pinot Noir is. You're going to spend a little bit more for it. it just, Absolutely. Especially for the quality ones. Pinot Noir is definitely one of those grapes you got to spend the extra money on to get a higher quality. You, 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 can't, you, have to. you can't buy cheap Pinot. It's you can't. Not, it's not going to be right. You can buy an expensive cab, and you know what? It's going to be tasty. You I could, cannot do that with Pinot. I could find you an inexpensive cab from all over the world. The inexpensive Pinot is still going to cost you a little bit more. Absolutely. If it's, especially if it's going to be real Pinot. Yeah. So, so yeah, man, that was that was fun. I liked uh, that we did the Santa Barbara. I can't wait to do actually more Pinots from different parts of the world. I like the way we picked one region, one area. Plus, it helps my knowledge. So now I'm, it, it, it lodges itself into this filing cabinet of a brain I have. So now I know what these two are like. And actually spending an hour or two with a wine and breaking it down, I'll never forget it. So it just for me, it's actually really useful. I do want to say one last thought that I forgot to mention, this last thing. I've had Pinot Noirs that have changed drastically over short periods of times to a couple hours. These have not. Mm -mm. The Cambria held the exact same through when we opened it to now, which is actually, it's good for if you're just trying to drink it. Now, I don't think the Cambria is going to be drank over two hours. I think it'll be drank quick, but it's not going to change so drastically. Really? And the Foley subtly like very lightly like the nose got a little more vibrant and that was about it really good point you bring up because so many episodes we're sitting here going should we decant it should we do this with it like hey let's decant half the bottle and let's drink it. like these we didn't even it wasn't even a thought process and no. it's they're just everyday drink good drinking bottles and i think a good final thought for you and me is do you decant pinot noir never i don't either never once i don't think i've ever decanted pinot nope i never will yeah i think it's a good way to go on that note yeah Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone. Appreciate Love you it. guys. Take care. Yep. Enjoy the music. <laughs> 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 <laughs>